was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. A late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help is like, it's like, I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels. I wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming speed. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lima bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. Wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we move it, it feels just like this. Feels just like this. It's just, it's like, like who the dunking? We would turn some dumb shit into something that got everybody wild in our circumference. Make assumptions, so they nothing new. Fucking mouth. Fuck. Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to another episode of the Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, back after a brief hiatus. I was on vacation last week. I did one call in earlier in the week, but with the travel days back and all of the stuff that was going on this weekend, I wasn't able to cram in another. But the good news is that the last two episodes are related. It has been one. A two-hour-long interview with Benjamin Norton, broken up into two pieces, so it kind of makes sense to talk about it all. And one call-in anyway, so as always, the floor is open to you to talk about today's episode, last Thursday's episode, and anything else that has been on your mind. It's been an incredibly busy news week. There was obviously the tragedy of the incident that happened on the New York subway, which I know has continue to percolate through the internet sphere. I see Jamel Bowie and Thomas Chatterton Williams still getting into it on the internet as we speak. Um, there has been evolution on the Tucker leaving Fox front. We covered it on rising this morning with um, uh, Megan Kelly saying um, that she's gotten permission basically to go scorched earth from Tucker Carlson and his allies are planning to have, have a no holds bars approach to um, Fox in the wake of Tucker's departure, hoping to get him free from his contract so that he can speak and uh, do his uh, show or some version of his show prior to the end of his contract, which bars him up until I believe January of 2025 after the election. There was that hilarious article we also covered this morning 
about Elizabeth Holmes, who I would love to talk to someone with about with on Bad Faith Podcast. If I can get someone just to shoot the shit with me this week and have a little bit of a lighter episode. Um, and I'm sure there's other things that have happened that I am forgetting, but that is why this is a call-in show. You guys are more than capable of reminding me of what I've missed. So, Chris, you're up first. What's on your mind this evening? Hey, hey, how you doing? How you doing? I'm doing well. That's good. That's good. Um, I, I wanted to talk about uh, everything that happened with um, the um, on the subway train between. Mm. I forgot what's the guy, what's the guy's name. Neely. Uh, uh, yeah, Neely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know his name's Neely. That's what I know. I didn't know. I um, think it's J- Jason but, um, Neely. I saw your second. Jason Neely. Oh, okay. Let me come All right. Yeah. Well, sorry about everything that. that's happened with him. Yeah, and kind of just like the discourse of everything that's been happening as far as like Jordan Neely. I'm sorry, happens. Jordan. Like I think you got... Jordan Neely. Okay, so mm-hmm. I want to get that right. Uh, Jordan Neely and everything as far as like the conversation with like mental health and like what to do. And I think you guys had a really good set. Well, you had a very fun debate with uh, Robbie. I don't know. He he he's like kind of like iffy sometimes because it's like sometimes like. I think he likes the idea of libertarianism and the whole thing of that, but then it's just like hard. I think sometimes he feels as though he could... actually. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I can't speak for him. But um, the segment that you guys uh, did, as far as like what could have been done or everything that happened, it's like we're sitting here and we're you know obviously. I know you didn't want to use the term murder, which is you know which is completely fine, just because we really don't know the guy's intent though. But mm-hmm. these are kind of like the consequences of what happens when. I mean, you're the one who broke, who really broke the law and killed someone. And I think like what people are trying to do, especially more so on the right, is saying like, oh, well, he's done this and this and this and that and that and that. And it's like, okay, but he didn't do that at this time. And at the mm-hmm. end of the day, you were the one who killed this man. You you killed him. Like, so like, why are you trying to sit there and like weigh that or or somehow like pretend like there's like justification for what he did? Now, like I said, maybe it's like I said, we'll see when if they ever do bring charges and shit like that on them or anything like that but i know um uh, uh what was it uh, breaking points uh they had they um saga and uh, ryan did a good kind of like segment on it, and i guess it was like about like the list that he was on like apparently there's like mm-hmm. a, a list of like i guess homeless people with like severe mental illness and stuff like that that they mm-hmm. track so he's been in and out of the system and I think Saga brought up the point. It was like, well, is there something that could have been done in this situation? Because at the end of the day, he still does have liberty. And mm-hmm. I know sometimes in this conversation, what happens is that we, I think sometimes we put a lot of like our our personal feelings toward people with mental illness. And I know it seems like it's always capped in like, well, they're, you know, if they're, you know, about them potentially being violent and things like that. But most of the time, most people with like severe mental illness, let's say schizophrenia and things like that, they're not violent people. So it's like, are we only going to try to force them into these kind of situations or what's force them into mental health things or put them in jail? Because I know that's usually the first strap is just like, okay, hey, I know I think you and Robbie was kind of talking about it. And he was like, um, he was like, oh, yeah, uh, you'll bring a social worker. And if they don't go with the social worker, then the, <laughs> the cop is going to force them. And it's like, well, do are we saying that people with mental health and like what severe mental health uh, diseases and stuff like that, do they not have a right to choose? Is that what we're about to argue now? Right. I mean, I was really struck 
struck by what feels to me like a disinterest in the liberty interests that we all have. And it's so interesting yeah. to me that when we're having the debate about the Second Amendment, there is an understanding <laughs> that one of the trade-offs of having the right to bear arms is that sometimes people are going to use that to mow down kids at a high school or shoot up people yeah. in the mall, like what just happened in Texas or whatever it is. And you have conservatives that come right up to basically saying that's just the price of freedom. Um, yep. And I may or may not agree with that, but it seems to me obviously inconsistent to say that's the price of freedom so that we can all have guns, but not to have an in, not to mm -hmm. be able to say, well, the, the price of us being able to be free, walk around on the streets, not be afraid that we're going to be locked yeah. up because we're mentally ill. The price of that is that sometimes yep. you have someone screaming on your face like a crazy person on the subway and occasionally they even hit you, but that we will yep. allow everyone to have guns when people are getting mass murdered, but not allow homeless people to be free, mentally ill people to be free when people do get assaulted. And I don't want to minimize the gravity of those assaults, but all in all, we got a pile of dead bodies from guns and some people with some pretty serious, yep. you know, attacks. I'm not, I'm not, I'm really not trying to minimize that, but like you can't have mm -hmm. it both ways. And, and there's, there's a yes. reason why, I mean, we have due process rights. The same crew that's always screaming about due process. You, like, I'm not exactly. saying that there are instances when people need to be in, put in therapeutic holds and things like that, but the bar should be pretty mm. high because of what it means to deprive somebody of their freedom. Yep. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, I can hear okay. you. Oh, sorry. Uh, I, I don't know what's going on with calling, but uh, yeah, like um, I, I agree with that. Like, you know, and I think it, like when you do bring it back to guns, it's like, oh, yeah, this is the price we pay. But then it's like, OK, so for like like you said, as far as like um, our liberty to just walk around and then also like, are we really getting to the point now where we're saying if you have meant, if you, if you have a severe mental disease or anything like that, we are going to force you to do treatment like in like we can acknowledge that by forcing that then yeah we're going we're basically saying okay you you are not mentally well or anything uh, so we're just going to lock you up or i guess yeah may, it won't be prison but it'll still be like a mental facility and then when can a person get out is there such thing as rehabilitation because obviously it seems like with this kid or this guy um it was it was very very severe it was very yeah. very severe it was and schizophrenic tragic. and it's like yeah, he was yeah. schizophrenic. He mm -hmm. stopped taking his medication after his mother was strangled to death by her boyfriend, a trauma that he didn't, you know, obviously exacerbated his from. illness and didn't recover from. He became very distrusting and didn't, you know, wasn't compliant with his medication. This is what happens. Schizophrenia is so hard. Yeah. Because it's exactly that reason. And the analogy that you bring up here, I mean, I can't help but think I'm sorry of this conversation we've been having about COVID for the last two or three years. Okay, well, there was a public health interest in forcing people to get vaccinated and forcing people to get home, stay home, mm -hmm. right? Now, the same people who were like, well, that public health interest was not as important as my liberty interest, my ability to work where I want to work and be free to leave my house and to be free not to have the government force me to inject things into my body. Yep. Okay, fair enough. So why is it different in this case? I think it's the person. And unfortunately, this is what I think where you guys was getting to as far as the conversation. It's who it is. Like even the like, because I think we all have a true understanding of like, just because something is an accident or you don't intend to do something doesn't mm -hmm. mean consequences aren't supposed to mm -hmm. happen. 
in this particular in this particular series, uh, uh, situation, people do feel as though like, well, we should be more cognizant of that, or there shouldn't shouldn't be no consequences. Person to who it is. This is a homeless person. This is a person who they deem as a violent person. Obviously, he has a bunch of encounters with the law. So now, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, their liberty needs to be stripped away. And it, it was really sad seeing Robbie try to argue that. I think what you tried to highlight was like um, the idea that because someone is a repeat offender, they should get severe time because they're a repeat offender as, as opposed to just being punished for the crime that they did. Like, mm-hmm. are you like, he was really sitting there arguing saying like a person who's uh, let's just say he steals from the store or something like that three, four times. He's a, he's a, he's a, uh, what's the term they used to say for uh, people who like a klepto. He's like a person mm-hmm. who was a kleptomaniac should serve um, the same amount of time as a rapist mm-hmm. like that's crazy and it's like it's crazy yeah it's, it's literally crazy it's like in your and i guess like his little trade-off was well what happened if that um what happened if that reduces crime by like 80 percent? i'm like well no but didn't we already kind of have that with our three strike laws and right. isn't, robbie, isn't, isn't robbie one of those people who argues that um our mass incarceration system is crazy right. so you can't and argue could- that yeah. I could lower yeah. crime by inst- in making a, a inst- instilling a curfew for every single person in America at 7 p.m. Exactly. And if you're caught outside your house after 7 p.m., you're jailed. I, I could do a lot of things. I could take away rights to own guns. I to, could take away your right mm. to drive a car and reduce the number of car accidents down to zero. Mm. I could do all kinds of things to be maximalist about preventing harm. But I think what is going on with these urban homeless encounters and encounters with the mentally ill, I noticed that Robbie kept coming back to the idea that it's random, that a bar mm. fight is less culpable than a random yeah, assault. Yeah, that's crazy. And I'm like, mm. what is that about? I, I, I think it's about people, like people have this belief, and I got to tell you, I feel like it's very American and kind of elitist. Mm-hmm. But this, yep. this belief that you can live your life in a way that completely insulates you from, from ever having to be affected by other people negative yeah mm-hmm. and and i don't mean to say like obviously the goal should be of course that nobody walks around becoming victims of violent assaults of course nobody wants to have be pickpocketed or have their cell phone stolen or be pushed on a train track or punched in the face i mean these are serious or, things that are happening to people right and i am no i have no interest in, in minimizing that none of us want those things to happen to us but most of us who've lived a little bit can appreciate yep. that we, there are these trade-offs that are a consequence of living in a society. And it seems to me that some mm-hmm. people are happy with the trade-offs when they think they aren't going to be the ones that are affected because we'll be they're the gun owner and they don't have kids in schools that are getting shot up and they don't, you know, they don't use the malls like other people and they live in a little gated, sequestered, uh, uh, you know, environment. But the subway is this open territory that everybody uses in a yep. city like New York, no matter how rich or poor you are, because it's the fastest Before way to get around. And they're like, well, I can't avoid the consequences. So suddenly I'm going to become an authoritarian. A hundred percent. Literally, literally. That, that's literally what it is. Like, and it's, and it's, and also like you can't help the person of who it is. It's the idea of like poor people affecting uh, or, or, or somehow inconveniencing you. And of course you see it. I mean, I see it on Twitter all the time. The idea that a poor person can affect you or wait, uh, 
your standard of living and things like that, you feel as though you have a right to fight back. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's illegally, but then we make these weird fucking justifications for why, oh, it's okay. Like, I remember I was getting into it with the guy in, in the comments on, on the Rising about the guy with the bear mace. And the guy mm-hmm. was like, well, what do you expect people to do? They've had enough. And it's like, what do you mean? You're the same people who sit here and try to push like the rule of law and you should just be the perfect fucking citizen and everything like that. Here's mm-hmm. a guy clearly macing people for no fucking reason outside of the fact they poor and you're, and you're sitting here saying that their justification of, for that is because they're tired of poor people living on in, in, in front of their streets mm-hmm. and their home people it, it, it's it's just it's it's kind of it's a really like fuck situation like a fuck way of like kind of like just thinking about this kind of stuff but I am kind of curious is what I mean what what would be like ideal like solutions to like this like to a problem because obviously i know um with um with uh, bre- uh breaking points they was uh i know saga was talking about i guess uh, what's his name schellenberger's his like little theory on that and i mean like his i, I his idea is to kind of i guess try to maybe look look at some of this as far um as far as like mental health and then but more importantly the drug problem and the drug crisis that's going on in our country too is maybe take a portugal route and how they do it and it's like yeah, we don't mind that you do drugs. You just can't do it in public areas. But then what does that look like? And more importantly, what does that look like in America? Because mm-hmm. unfortunately, the only the only thing we have to enforce laws is our shitty ass fucking justice system and our, our shitty ass fucking cops who are just terribly trained. And I wouldn't trust them to handle any person, especially a person who's going through a severe mental cri- uh, health crisis and stuff to get them off the streets. Yeah. I mean, it, I think the diagnosis ultimately is going to take a lot more um, people with kind of professional medical expertise and professional um, mental health and also policing yeah. expertise than any of us or most of us in this call have. I will say I did see <laughs> some reports that Neely um, was doing what the K2 um, which is a drug that oh, tends gosh. to cause yeah. more violent reactions. I'd be interested yeah. to know if legalizing other kinds of drugs and if he had access to mellow drugs like pot would have made a difference because <laughs> it does seem like he lived a lot of his life. You know, not all schizophrenics are violent, you know, and that, yep. you know, yeah, the so, majority of them aren't. And for most of his life, he wasn't or for mm-hmm. much of his life. Anyway, he wasn't people observed this, this escalation in his behavior. So, how much of that was actually about the schizophrenia? How much was it the schizophrenia being triggered by some of the drug habits? I was—I just read this great article. I'm, I uh, had some time today uh, where I tried to go through some of my old New York Magazine backlogs. And I was reading this edition from uh, January of this year, January 16th through January 29th. And there's a great article in it about um, the so-called uh, uh, petty, uh, what do you call it? Um, shoplifting epidemic. And one of the points that were made in the article was how many people are shoplifting to fuel their drug habits. And so there's this, it's like, it's like a complex thing, right? And how there are these kingpins of the pickpocketing market who sit up in these, like this is this main person they profile who sits up in this store in the diamond district and a pawn shop who puts out the word to all of the drug addicts in the neighborhood that he wants them to bring certain kind of products. And then he resales them on the internet. And the part of why there's been this spike in, in um, shoplifting is because of the rise of online retail where you can take the labels off and sell anything. And it's very difficult to track back to a particular 
theft. Mm. It's really easy to off offload things. Yeah. So you have all these things working together, internet culture, mm. addiction issues, et cetera, that are coming, you know, the broader, a broader poverty crisis to, that are coming together. And all the stories that you get is like, Oh, random people are just stealing from CVS and Oh no, now the CVS is going to close and middle-class Americans are hurting because of it, you know? So like, I, I do wonder about, the cycle of addiction and what role that plays in these kinds of things. I do wonder, I mean, there's a reason why we have this mental health crisis in part is because there was a lot of abuse that was going on in mental health facilities in the seventies. So yep. do we just want to go back down that road without evaluating whether it's possible to have safe institutions that are actually well-funded and geared toward keeping people safe, happy and healthy. Mm-hmm. And I'm skeptical, which is part of why I I'm really stressing the liberty interest point here because it is a big deal to lock someone up in any kind of institution. And I'd much prefer a world where we can figure out how people who are schizophrenic can remain free. My my eldest uncle who recently passed away was schizophrenic and lived his whole life just on the street. Not not like literally on the street. Sometimes he was, but in various care facilities, moving around. Sometimes he knew where he was. Sometimes he didn't, but he wasn't a a criminal. He didn't get into that kind of trouble he just wasn't that kind of schizophrenic you know yeah um i actually um the last person i um the last girl i dated she was actually diagnosed with schizophrenia and Mm. like you wouldn't i wouldn't never thought it she until she actually told me and then uh when we first met it was at the post office and everything like that she didn't start experiencing her stuff until her late 20s Mm -hmm. so she told me like when we first met like that's when it started developing for her and she was like uh, she'd be at the post office she would see things she would hear people like whispering and she used to work with late night because she used to uh, throw the boxes and everything, get people's routes ready and stuff like that. And then she had a ment- she had a, a severe mental episode um, mm-hmm. during like COVID and everything. She was out with her friends and then it just got to her and then she had to get uh, hospitalized and everything like that. And then of course mm-hmm. she fought it for like, luckily she, um, she ended up uh, having, um, she, she understands that she needs her medication, but she also has a son too. And she kind of lost, she lost her apartment and she lost a lot of things because of that whole thing but mm-hmm. i would hate for her someone to just go oh you need to just we just want to throw you into an institution not knowing the severity or just like or just, yeah or just like kind of like reading a person and see how well they adjust it like her situation is a little different because she did accept taking meds and she's comfortable with the idea that she takes meds yeah got you yeah uh but um yeah um yeah that was like the situation so no yeah yeah and my my fear is that so if in this instance, remember that in this instance, Jordan Neely didn't lay a finger on anyone. Mm-hmm. Like that's, I feel like yep. that's really getting lost in the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. He did these other things in the past, but none of that was known by his assailant. Uh, mm-hmm. Pe- Peel. Oh God. And I found it. Oh, I can't remember these people's names, but the, the former Marine, none of that was known by him. So we're the, the question here is his culpability in the killing of Neely. Mm-hmm. And all that he knew is that, oh, wow, it's in New York and there's another person screaming and hollering on the train. What else is new? Yep. He yep. chose, like, I'm not saying it wasn't threatening, that they didn't feel like there was imminent threat, etc. But that's not the law. You don't mm-hmm. get to just start putting people in chokeholds. Because you're inconvenienced. Because you're, because you're even, even because you're scared. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works. I, yeah. I don't know what to tell people. Like, is it does it is it right to scare people? No, this isn't a moral judgment. It's, it's not moral absolution for Neely either. But Neely didn't kill anybody. 
Exactly. The other guy did. So we're talking about what happened on this train. In this train, the crime that was committed, zero crimes were committed by Neely. Mm-hmm. Homicide was committed by the um, the former Marine. And that's exactly. all there is to it. And that, that we're having a conversation about homelessness and schizophrenia and stuff is good, mm-hmm. you know, generally speaking, but not if it's being used as a way to sidestep a conversation about the mm-hmm. former Marines culpability Ability. and the, yep. the risk of vigilantism and yep. random people who learn about a chokehold and basic training or from watching the MMA or whatever, mm-hmm. feeling like they, because they mm-hmm. are scared on a train, that they can, they can, they can kill people. Yeah, exactly. In, intentional or unintentional. Like, imagine, like, how I look at it in a situation. Just say different situation, though, but um, I'm at a bar or I'm at an outing and someone, two people get into some kind of disagreement, some kind of frame. It's loud, it's everything like that. And then I take it upon myself to come up behind someone. Let's just say I pick them up and slam them or I tackle them. Mm-hmm. They fall some way, break their neck. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure those these same people who are trying to condemn or who are trying to give the guy Penny a pass are not going to give me a pass because they understand at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. I'm not the fucking, if anything, I should have called the police. Right. Right. And th- this is the cost of not calling the police. Exactly. Y'all, Eric Adams wants to put a cop on every corner and flood mm-hmm. the subway with cops. Okay, then everyone needed to just scoot their little butts off the train like we've all done a time or two in the past. You know, like if it's a stranger danger situation, there's no crime and getting up and scuttling over to the next car. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's just the cost of doing business in New York. We all understand the situation. Mm-hmm. You keep your head down. You look at your book. You look at your phone. You mind your own business. Mm-hmm. I have never in my life felt like, and like, let's figure out like also what this mindset is. Obviously I'm not a Marine. I've mm-hmm. never beat anybody up. I'm, smaller you know than some mm-hmm. of these other people so i'm not saying i'm a hero for not wanting to get into fisticuffs with people but i do think it's a problem that whatever your life your experience your size or whatever you have you have you have going on it's a problem if that makes you feel entitled to put your hands on somebody else yep mm-hmm. like that's not being bigger thinking you can win the fight is not an entitlement to put your hands on somebody else Exactly. Exactly. Like sometimes like you, there is a such thing as just walking away or ignoring or like, you know, yeah. Wait until it like escalates the idea that, okay, yes, everyone is in a small space and they are very uncomfortable right now because this dude is just having an episode and he's saying he don't give a shit. He don't give a fuck anything like that. And so he, I say assault someone or touches somebody. You kind of just like, oh, okay. Or you could just stand in front of them like you don't gotta necessarily like just come behind him and then just wrestle him to the goddamn ground and like say you you restricted his airway for 15 minutes i don't care what little you know or how much mma you know you do know when you apply that kind of pressure with someone the brain has roughly about can only lose like a minute of oxygen before it dies you did it for 15 minutes and apparently there was there's this new audio where someone in the train you can hear off camera saying Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that he defecated himself. If he defecated himself, it's over. Like you need to let him go. This is the yeah. problem. And he was like, someone else was like, no, he already had soiled himself. That was there from before. And who knows what's true or what's not. But there was a clear conversation about how there was someone in that room, someone on that train car was concerned that he had been strangled for too long. Yeah. And 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 said to um, the former marine you're going to get like, you need to be worried about picking up a murder charge. Mm-hmm. Said it to him in the moment. Right. 
Yep. So at that point, when, if you're still holding on to people, if you're still, if there's yep. that level of concern and you and you persist, then it starts to escalate from maybe you just made a bad mistake. Yep. To something more culpable. Exactly. Exactly. But uh, that's all I had, and um, I'm gl- I am glad you're back at Rising because uh, Misha, whoo, she's a liberal. <laughs> Wait, who's Misha? Amisha. Uh, Oh, Amisha, Amisha, yeah, sorry. Amisha, I'm about to say, Amisha. they got another girl up in there? Yeah, 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 no. yeah. I, oh, man, I, I wish you would have. Oh, obviously, you was on vacation and stuff, but your commentary would have been a thousand times better. That being said, though, we love we love everyone on Rising and all the Rising guests. So, glad you're well, back. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you, Chris. Thanks, as always, for calling in. All right, keep the faith. All righty, let me go to... Uh... Let's see. Lysol. What's on your mind tonight? For those of you who are new in the chat, I, go, I take one from the front and then one randomly selected from the queue, back and forth, back and forth. So if you're in the back, sit tight. I might be coming for you. You never know. Lysol. How's it going? Pretty good. So you got a little bit of a vacation? I did. Nice. Sorry, I, I'm one of the people who's been screaming that at you from the chat for a couple months, so I'm glad that I'm glad you got some time. Good. And I appreciate your support again. I, I managed to keep the podcast schedule going through because of pre-recording and I was pretty proud of that. But um, I did miss the one call in. So I'm glad to have a chance to catch up with you today. What's on your mind? Um, I mean, kind of the whole state of everything. Have, have you been following the Banco Brown stuff in San Francisco? Uh, we covered it. Wait, the Banco Brown stuff. No. What's that? So Banco Brown was, I think, either 19 or 21 year old uh, black trans man who was shot to death by a Walgreens security guard last week. Mm. By a, an armed security guard. I don't, I didn't, I didn't think that they had that. I thought that most of the theft protection people, basically most of the stores decided that they can't do much, that, that it's better for them just to basically let people shoplift and go find them after the fact using security cameras or, you know, keeping their pictures on the wall so they can't be repeat offenders. But I thought that most of the theft protection stuff didn't involve anybody who's armed or even really anybody who intercepts folks that are stealing anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm not 100% on it, but I think if I remember correctly, the thing was if you had, they wouldn't give you a gun, but if you had a gun and were licensed to carry it, you could bring it with you. Hmm. So, but anyway, this, it confronted, confronted the kid over um, $14 worth of candy allegedly he uh, he spit on the security guard security guard walked him outside went back inside then turned around walked back outside and shot him oh my god yeah walgreens is refusing to um refusing to release the footage and their their statement was mostly kind of like we their main point was you know we support safety for all you know we don't like violence in our stores just kind of like playing into the narrative that the person who um the person who was killed was the person who started the violence. And they threatened him or something like that, even though it was a 5'4 person versus a 6'2 person. Um, yeah. and I'm really SF- sorry to hear that. The SFDA, uh, the one who replaced Chesa Boudin, is also refusing to release the video and refusing to press charges on the, on the Walgreens cop or the security guard. On what basis could they possibly say that it wasn't disproportionate use of force? They're saying it was self-defense. Against what? The kid wasn't armed. Exactly. Somebody said they, they threatened to stab them, but again, threatening to stab somebody is not actually using force. Did they? Did they have? Did they even have a knife? Nope. 
And it, it was weird. So um, Michael Moritz, the guy who uh, runs Sequoia Capital, he's always the top 20 donor in uh, federal electoral cycles. He started a newspaper called SF Standard. And they've got kind of this access piece, uh, access journalism thing going. They're not, um, they hired away a lot of the best writers from other local places. And they're currently not even, there's no, there's no ad model. They're not selling subscriptions. Right now, it's just kind of his pet project. And they got some information. They reported some stuff that they then later had to recant. And um, what was it? Oh, and then they, they published an interview with, um, with the security guard before the, before he had released a public public statement or hired a lawyer or anything like that. And what did they say? What did he say? Oh, it was just, you know, like, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm left with increasingly fewer options and stuff like this happens all the time. It's only a matter of time before something like this happens. A does, bunch of nonsense. Does he admit to having gone back into the store and then coming back out to shoot the kid? I'd have to check on that. It was very I much. Mean, how do we know that it, without the footage? Um, oh, uh, witnesses. The the witnesses mm-hmm. all are all pretty much in in sync. There was a, a guy who videotaped, I think, the very the very end after the shot had already been made. He was in the um, he was at the at the checkout line. He saw the security guard walk back in, the walk back outside. And that's when he started he started filming. But the shot had already happened at that point. Jesus. Yeah. No, well, I'll, I'll look into that and see if it is something that can make it onto the the rising call sheet. This yeah. week. It just, it felt, I mean, it, it felt apropos because it's kind of like the West Coast version of the stuff that's happening with, um, with the Neely kid. Um, both San Francisco, or both California and New York passed laws in 2022, making it easier to institutionalize people. Um, again, this was a poor homeless person who um, spent their free time helping uh, trans youth access local, um, access lo- local resources and stuff. And it's been, there's been a lot, a lot of really good protests. And I just, I just wonder like, when does something replace Black Lives Matter? Because that issue didn't just disappear because they got co-opted. I mean, I mean, nothing, I don't know. Nobody wants to do anything. I, I mean, like it can't be. So there's been a whole round of criticism of the people who've been blocking the subways. My feeling is that the dumbest waste of time that a person could do in their whole lives is to spend your time criticizing somebody else's choice of how to protest. I'm sorry. I just have no patience for it. There's a conversation about what is the most effective route to do and blah, 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 blah. But I promise you, you'll never see me out in public yucking somebody else's yum when I'm sitting on my sofa and they're trying to express their discontent with some injustice that has happened. That's not ever going to be me in my life. However, there are a bunch of people out here on the internet right now having arguments about what is and is not analogous to the Montgomery boycott. And there's this whole weird pantomime that people do now where they pretend like this inconvenience to working class person. So the protest isn't okay. Like 75% of the people who use the bus system in Montgomery weren't working class black people. Like it's, it's, it's gotten to be like this real absurd bullshit. That being said, it, my critique of all protests all the time would be that there does need to be more of a focus on levers of power. And, and not to say that um, transit disruptions aren't, aren't, can't, aren't that and can't be that. Look at the truckers protest. There's many examples of this. But also, I'm sorry, like there are politicians in both parties who have control over criminal justice reform. 
and none of their names are getting said and nobody's saying anything about Joe Biden in this election year and nobody's making any kind of direct political appeal. And that frustrates me, but I'm not in charge. I'm just putting out there that that frustrates me. Like specific asks. I don't don't mean to say that people aren't making specific asks. I do believe that in New York, they're specifically rallying about the non, um, the, the, the lack of charges, um, in that case. But generally speaking, broadly speaking, this is my issue with the 2020 Black Lives Matter uh, lack of focus. And that's what the co-option did. It it prevented there from being that kind of a specific call to action that could have imperiled, let's say, the Democrats' electoral chances in that year and actually been leverage. So, I, I mean, I don't know. What feels so despairing about it is that you have evidence that people are very upset in terms of the media coverage and the protests and the people in the street and on the tracks. But then what? Yeah, then it all gets funneled into the next election and everything is being talked about in the context of a theoretical battle that we can't win even if we win. I mean, AOC, I saw her like tweeting and fighting with people on the Internet and you know, defending Neely, but, you know, and maybe she's doing this. I don't mean to speak out of turn if I just haven't seen it. But what I would love to see is as Republicans are screaming that this is all about a mental health crisis and that people need to have more institutional support. Okay, let's get a funding bill going that that funds more institutional support. You know? Yeah, there's this, <laughs> the, the personalization of the Democratic Party where all they need to do is convince you that they are also sad. Like Biden's like, oh, look, I'm I, I hate I hate gun violence as much as everybody else. But what can I do? And then mm-hmm. everybody on down says the same thing. Yeah. We need 60 Democrats. That'll fix it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all I got. Yeah. Well, look, I, thank you for calling in, Lysol. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, for sure. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Jonathan, what's in your mind tonight? Uh, well, uh, firstly, I got to say, I am delighted to have you back on Rising again. It's a breath of fresh air. And... <laughs> You're not our content sweatshop, and you're entitled to a vacation. But uh, really, I was my fix, and I got it, and it was it was awesome. I mainly called in to talk about the episode, but I did want to say about uh, this whole situation, uh, the Neely situation. Like I said in your replies when it first happened, I do think like a significant part of this is a culture that has been stoked by propaganda shows on TV. For the last, you know, thirty or you know, even forty years, uh, with this whole portrayal of vigilantes and and, and vigilantism mm-hmm. and people who bystanders who interfere um, as these kinds of heroes, and you know, people people have been emulating that. They seem to think that's a thing to do. They that's the way their thinking is framed, and so all of these people who uh, think that it's up to them to interfere and be Batman and stop the crime. Um, you know, they're this delusion, this lack of understanding of the nuance of the situation. Like you could do a whole episode on mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, also say, like, I particularly appreciated the way you, you handled, uh, which, you know, I think you should definitely continue to do like Perry Mason. It like, when, when they try to change the subject on things like this, when Robbie tries to change the subject on things like this, be like, objection, Your Honor, relevance. <laughs> yeah. Neely committed no crime. 
This guy murdered him. He was unarmed. It doesn't matter what he did before. doesn't matter what he did 10 minutes before. doesn't matter what he did an hour before. doesn't matter what he did the year before. doesn't matter that he jumped a turnstile. doesn't matter any of that shit. Turnstile, you're right. Yeah, bottom line, not relevant. But, yeah, uh, and yeah, he, did, so he, did, he did some stuff that you feel like he should have gone to jail for or been kind of legally accountable for. That went out the window. The, the opportunity for the justice system, as flawed as it is, to play its role was ended when Neely was killed. You know? Like, <laughs> you wanted justice. The justice system can't work on someone who's dead. And that, you know. The mental health system. Yeah, well, most certainly. Most certainly, but the, the call back to, well, he did this program that if he complied with it, he wouldn't have had to do jail time, but then he didn't comply with the program, so he should have been this. Okay, the should have, but it could have. Who was going to ever? There's none of that now. He will not be going to jail. You know what I mean? It's like this idea, even to the extent that you think that he did past crimes that he should be held accountable for, the payment for those crimes was not going to be the death penalty. And that's and so now we're talking about an additional crime, and that's the one that was committed by. Uh, why cannot remember this? Why cannot remember the Marine's name? P. I something. can't either. It just someone just said it. It's not. I keep wanting to say Peel, and it's not Peel. It's like Penny, Penny. It's Penny. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Um. Yeah, it 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 is a it is taxing. It's been so many of these cases over the past month, and. At a certain point, I don't know what to tell somebody who doesn't already feel the value of a life in that way. I don't, you know. Or at least doesn't appear to when they keep changing the subject like that. Yeah, I mean, in my brain, violating the law, even doing horrible things to people, there's not like a, there's not like a, um, a till that's like accounting for how much I should care if you, you know, like the value of your life isn't being diminished by the mistakes that you make. I, 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 I don't know. Maybe I'm, this is the human secular humanism jumping out of me, but I mean the, the, the kind of categories for punishment and what deserves to happen for punishment for, to keep society safe, all of those things are in a separate till from the how much I should care if you are killed till. And and it's just, it's very interesting to me to hear people say it's very low-level things like, oh, they jumped a turnstile. You know, they screamed in someone's face and were threatening. I mean, like, I, I, again, I don't mean to diminish how scary that is or how bad it is to sucker punch you know, an old lady and the things that Neely did do, you know, I, I have no interest in diminishing that. What's curious to me is there's just the materiality of it. I don't want to diminish that, but I just, it, it does not affect my feelings about whether Penny did something wrong. And that in this case, Neil did not touch anybody and yet Penny killed him. Right. And well, if, yeah, if we can acknowledge that, like at the end today, Robbie said like, yeah, I like, I agree. That in this case, Neely didn't do anything and Penny killed him. I'm like, well, if, if everyone were just starting off from that point, we'd be having a very different national conversation. Yeah, I think like, that's where the propaganda comes in. Like, I think it does, like, you go all the way back to, like, the Dirty Harry movies. Uh, there is a message that uh, these criminal elements are incorrigible. 
uh, irreparable. It dehumanizes them. And uh, these people are encouraged to think that the best way to deal with these people is to exterminate them. Mm-hmm. And that is like that plays a huge role, I think, in people's attitudes towards the human lives and the humanity of the people that are in these situations. And especially when those people turn out to be, um, you know, uh, mentally ill. Uh, and, you know, in the case of schizophrenics, it's a much more complicated situation because it's not like it's not like there's pathologically something um uh, something wrong with them. The brains are wired different and the society mm-hmm. is really not designed to accommodate, uh, you know, their different needs from the rest of society. And it can be a very rough place out there for a schizophrenic. Those medicines are basically chemical lobotomies in a lot of cases. And, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, it's like I said, you could do a whole episode just on that particular issue. It's not something with an easy solution. And a lot of these are really good people. Uh, most of the people that inhabit mental facility, mental health facilities are voluntary committals, uh, not, you know, people that got hauled over there by the cops. And, uh, you know, they're, they're just trying to make their way in this world, just like everybody else. So, yeah. I yeah. mean, I wonder when Neely was quoted as saying, like, I don't care if I go to jail, there was a part of me, and this is pure conjecture, obviously, I mean, there are people who intentionally do little crimes to try to get incarcerated because that's the only way they can figure out how to get a bed and a meal. Yeah. And, you know, and that's a really bleak place for us to be in society. So what did you have to say, Jonathan, about today's episode? Um, today's and, you know, the earlier one, mm-hmm. like, honestly, like I watch, uh, you know, Ben Norton's, uh, YouTube videos quite a lot. And, you know, he has a, a whole show every other week with Michael Hudson and Radhika Desai, which I love. Um, I, I'm used to agreeing with him more than I did in these two episodes, actually. I thought your takes were actually uh, pretty base, but like those areas where he uh, kind of diverged, like I thought he had kind of a less nuanced take on uh, the Tucker thing than I would have expected for somebody that uh, does the kind of work he does, I guess. And what way? Uh, although, uh, you know, basically, like, he kind of had almost the same uh, kind of, uh, you know, histrionic response. There was no, there wasn't a lot of the parsing that this actually is good, you know, that people are complicated, people contain multitudes. Um, you know, I thought, actually, his old buddies at, uh, you know, the Gray Zone guys, uh, you know, they parted ways a while ago over various things, but, uh, you know, Aaron Mate, I thought, had an excellent, very nuanced take that, yes, there he said a lot of things that were really horrible, reprehensible, nasty, uh, racist, you know, even a little fascistic sometimes, but he also did these good things in good faith. Uh, he gave platforms to a large audience of people with a very complicated array of viewpoints as you brought up in that, in that conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, that, uh, it's, it's a little more complicated than that. And I think, uh, you know, we saw people don't like a lot of complications. It's super easy to fall into that, uh, you know, moral outrage position. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, the people that had a more nuanced take, 
paid the prices in slings and arrows. I think we saw that uh, with those those two uh, prospect reporters and, and of course, Mo Kasich, the editor, uh, that defended them. Uh, you know, they had a nuanced take. It was obviously not, um, you know, they were obviously not praising the guy. But, you know, they uh, they got ratioed to hell on Twitter and lots of angry letters to the prospect. Their own editors threw them under the bus. Um, but, you know, real life is is more complicated than that. I like, guess I'm curious because you know, I agreed with the prospect. I didn't have an issue with the prospect article. I thought the reaction to it was an overreaction. I feel like I agree with um, what I've heard Aaron say. He was just discussing with, with this with Bronco March Teach on what I think is the latest episode of Useful Idiots. But I, I guess I'm confused. I, I, I didn't hear as much difference between what Ben Norton said and what those others have been saying, except for that he went into more detail about Tucker Carlson's um, war hawkery on China. So help me understand what, what it was um, about Norton's take that you felt like was a, a departure from some of those others. Um, basically just kind of trying to lump him into that category of this is the same as, you know, European fascists, which, you know, frankly, I've, I've looked at that pattern pretty closely. I don't, uh, I don't see that as the same thing at all. Um, you know, I think, um, like I said, he's a, he's a complicated guy. Um, you know, I'm sure he has reasons for the various takes that he has, but it's a complicated set of reasons that doesn't really that uh, isn't really easily categorized. And I think that there was a, an attempt there to confuse personal feelings about uh, Tucker Carlson and a lot of the um, the kind of right-wing, uh, so, you know, so-called right-wing faux populist pundits, um, you know, with uh, a much more, like, I, I think that would have benefited from uh, a little bit more of a, of a nuanced, less emoted, uh, take on that subject. Like I said, the more along the lines of, of the way uh, Aaron Mate did it, but you know, it wasn't um, the other thing that I think kind of got me with him was, um, you know, he, he got a lot of the economics wrong in the first episode um, in, in kind of strange ways that I would have uh, thought, especially given that some of them were, were things that uh, if he had paid attention to some of those Michael Hudson episodes on his own channel, uh, he should have uh, known better as far as like there's a there's a narrative, I guess, that, that he was reflecting that's very popular on the left, uh, but the left that doesn't really understand macro macroeconomics uh, about de-dollarization and about, um, you know, even with things like uh, the, the post Bretton Woods gold standard thing, like uh, he didn't seem to even know that ordinary people couldn't convert uh you know, like the $35 an ounce, uh, you know, to gold. That was something only central state central banks could do. And for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, post Bretton Woods, the U.S. dollar had always been the reserve currency long before the petrodollar thing. And frankly, by that point, nobody really needed a reserve currency anymore uh, per se. Uh, but the issue had been that the U.S. is the world's loan shark. And be, that's why they needed U.S. dollars. So, like, there's a lot of things he seemed a little confused about. I don't, um, you know, the, the bottom line that I think got missed is 
Uh, firstly, you know, the U.S. role in commodities markets always going to be big as well. And secondly, uh, anybody who is not a major like U.S. billionaire um, should be cheering for de-dollarization. Like there's in no way will it hurt us. Um, you know, a couple of things might go up in the short term price wise, but not right away, like not precipitously. And, you know, like by and large, um, it would do things like force the reonshoring of manufacturing. Um, it would stop the U.S.'s ability to bully and keep a boot on the neck of other countries. It would allow those other countries to do things like what Russia has been doing since we sanctioned them and develop their own domestic manufacturing capacity, uh, you know, industrialize themselves, develop themselves, uh, reach their potential. I think a huge chunk of the countries in the world, particularly in the global south, uh, they're, the biggest thing they're suffering from is a failure to recognize their own power. And Why would uh, it force a, the um, reonsuring of industrial jobs? Oh, because, um, you know, the, like the, it would no longer necessarily be cheaper to uh, have those globalized supply chains and import from those countries. Uh, the price of that would go up. And um, and it would no longer be sustainable for them to keep exploiting all those countries in the global south if they no longer were able to turn those countries into debt slaves that were forced to open up their markets for exploitation by U.S. capitalists. But, you know, the, the money that's derived from that, that doesn't go to people like us. That goes straight into the bank accounts of, you know, global multinationals and billionaires. Um, but you know, isn't that's part not... The choice to offer the jobs just about the lower cost of, I mean, having you know not having to pay people as much, you know, no lower minimum wages if there are any at all, lower labor standards, you know. That's certainly part of it, but you have to ask yourself why those standards are like that and stay like that for all that time. And a huge chunk, and you know that was something that Ben did get right when he started talking about like what the IMF does, um, you know what uh, what U.S. what the World Bank does, uh, what you know a lot of the U.S. global order does, which is um, force them into dollar-denominated debts, um, mostly through trickery, uh, and uh, force them into austerity policies that keep those wages low. And they keep those labor standards low and keep those uh, American companies that go over and do foreign direct investment completely deregulated. And so once that stuff is gone, once they no longer have leverage over those countries and those countries are able to use different payment systems, uh, either borrow from different countries or start building their own things with assistance from countries like China and their One Belt, One Road initiative, um, you know, things of that nature. Uh, then wages start going up, labor standards start going up. Um, you know, people start seeking uh, better paying jobs. They stop, uh, you know, doing low value added stuff, start doing high value added stuff. Uh, and it's no longer, you know, the, the cost uh, for these companies to continue uh, doing these global supply chains starts going up precipitously. Um, and, you know, that's... Uh, Honestly, that is that's a good thing. Like that is something that they have been gaining at the expense of 
cannibalizing the productive economy of the United States since, you know, the 70s in particular. Like, you know, and that's like that would absolutely start forcing them to uh, start reinvesting in the United States again domestically uh, just because like the cost of that sort of thing would start going up and the cost of maintaining, I might add, military bases abroad. Uh, would start going up as well, which is something that uh, the Defense Department would have to start accounting for. Mm. So, well, I see some some thoughts and feelings and pushback in the chat that I'm not really qualified to weigh in on, but I'll try to get to some of you folks who want to mix it up about this. I always appreciate hearing from you, Jonathan. Oh, I appreciate being heard from. So, thanks for having <laughs> me up here. Thank you again. Keep the faith, my friend. You too. Let's go to uh, Sierra Jane. How are you doing tonight, Sierra? Hi, Brianna. Hello. What's on your mind tonight? Um. Uh. A few things. Um. I was wondering if you had heard about uh, Lashawn Thompson. I don't think so. And, okay. Um. He was, it was like a few weeks before um, the Neely situation happened. And um, he was a, a prisoner in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, he was in a, in a psychiat in the psychiatric wing. And um, they, like, he was schizophrenic. You you might have seen it in the news, but he was he was schizophrenic, and um, they found him dead, and he had like bed bugs all over his body, and it was like they um, like they just threw him in oh, there. I did hear about I, that. Yeah, and um, I just thought it kind of pertained to what you guys were talking about um, like five minutes ago with like um, how the mentally ill are treated in America. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, like even um, he was in the psychiatric wing and um, it's just, I feel like it's just, totally encapsulates how the mentally ill are, are viewed and people who just can't be, I guess, um, managed. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. You know, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, that's exactly the concern and why everybody should be hesitant about using institutionalization as a cure for various social concerns. There is a way that folks, I think, perceive the consequences when they're weighing the consequences as only mattering if they affect the non-mentally ill. So if on one hand you have, um, you know, a great deal of disruption on the train, but a small fraction of physical incidents against innocent people by people who are homeless or mentally ill or both. 
And on the other hand, you have mentally ill people getting eaten alive by bed bugs in an institution. There are people who will be very quick to say that it's worth a trade-off because no matter how gruesome the fate of the mentally ill person is, their fate is not considered to matter as much as the, you know, the person who quote unquote didn't do anything wrong, the law abiding person, Mm -hmm. the mentally average person, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I think we saw that a little bit in today's rising conversation when for some reason, you know, the fact of someone having jumped a turnstile is evoked as a counterbalance to them laying dead on a, on a train floor. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know what to do about that. Now the unspoken part, both in this conversation and on the conversation on rising today is, is whether or not Neely also on top of everything else being black affects how much people value his life and whether or not people deserve to be rotting away in various types of institutions. It's not a topic I choose to bring up on rising because it doesn't go anywhere. (laughs) Um, But of course that's something that percolates in the back of my mind in addition to a whole host of other factors. And so, you know, I have concerns. I have concerns about populations, whether they be mentally ill people, various marginalized groups, trans people, et cetera, being already framed in these dehumanizing ways and what that means about the level of treatment that we will accept for them in these institutions. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of of the opinion that I feel like people, like, I think schizophrenia, it might be partially genetic, but, uh, like, develop, you know, if you have a history, your family history has Mm -hmm. a history of mental illness, then you're more likely to have mental illness yourself. But I also wonder if just culturally if people are just pushed to the brink where they end up having a mental breakdown or snapping and then like trauma contributes to it absolutely does schizophrenia Mm -hmm. i'm not an expert i'm sorry but my understanding is that uh, yes, there's a genetic component. I think if you have a parent who's schizophrenic, you're like twice as likely to be schizophrenic. Now, the, the odds are still very low, right? Like, let's say the average, you know, the average person has a 1% chance of being schizophrenic. And if you have a, dis- a schizophrenic parent, it goes up to 2%. Like, it's still very low. But, mm-hmm. you know, there is a um, relationship there that is genetic. But also, there are social, psychological, and chemical factors that can bring on uh, schizophrenic psychotic breaks and exacerbate your condition. And that is why you see, I mean, like where are all the rich schizophrenics? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There, there obviously are some, and part of that is just because their families are able to keep them, you know, away from the public and institution and, and take care of them indifferently. But also because there are these other factors, including drug use, um, trauma that can trigger schizoid episodes and schizoid breaks. So if people are really invested in having calmer subway commutes, you know, there should be more of a focus on what is driving these 
these high rates of schizophrenia and other um, disorders that are correlated with certain controllable external factors. That's not everything, right? But mm-hmm. you, you, can, you can put a dent in this stuff. Uh, here we go. Yes. Genetic factors include, sorry, environmental factors include, I'm reading from Wikipedia now, mm-hmm. being raised in a city, childhood adversity, cannabis use during adolescence, infections, the ages of a person's mother or father, and poor nutrition during pregnancy. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Um, and it's like, People, the general public doesn't know how to deal with people with schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Like, um, it just, I think it just triggers fear in -hmm. people. And then their response could be not at all that it's justified, but their, their response is to lash out because they feel like they're being threatened. And um, I think people with schizophrenia, it's, they feel, um, I think we, it's like they feel things really intensely. And um, I think a lot of people have a lot of the same experiences that people with schizophrenia have, but their lives might be stable enough to where they don't break like that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I was also, this is kind of, I don't know if this relates, but um, uh, like person, do you, what do you think about like the personality disorder of uh, narcissistic personality disorder? Yeah, I'm not entirely, again, I am nobody's clinician, so I'm not, I don't know much about that. I do mm-hmm. know that there are various um, disorders that are wildly overrepresented among the prison population, which of course also has a wild overrepresentation of um, people with other kinds of mental illness. So, mm. I, I mean, is, yeah. is there something specific that you've heard that you'd like to well, share? I, I just, I, I wonder if like with, to me, like in, during the era where there was slavery in the United States, mm-hmm. um, I, I can't help but think that every single slave owner was narcissistic because how could they not be narcissistic if they're using other people if they're just exploiting other people their bodies and just treating them like they're tools like they're not even humans and i just like wonder if that is if that's just something that I've just invented in my head for confirmation bias, or if there's something there, like if there's actually a pathology there that was in within slave owners and just people in general who exploit other people. Well, look, some people argue that 
you know, racism in and of itself is a kind of mental illness. Bigotry in and of itself is a kind of mental illness because it's so irrational. Um, and somebody might look back at how we're all living in late stage capitalism as, as well meaning as all of us are on this chat. It is also true that many of us have enormous privilege compared to some others, um, that we are all participating in a system. We're all on our iPhones or whatever, you know, like there are Mm -hmm. all those kinds of arguments that with the passage of time, people might look back and say, well, why didn't they do more? Why right. didn't they say more? Why did they spend hours on an app talking about it instead of planning a meetup to do X, Y, Z? You know, like who, kno- mm-hmm. who knows? I, I'm not trying to conflate us with <laughs> slave owners. <laughs> but, you know, I I don't know that. I think that <sighs> there are a lot of things that people can collectively delude themselves about because it's culturally appropriate. It's perceived to be culturally acceptable broadly that don't necessarily mean Mm -hmm. it's a mental disorder per se Mm -hmm. you know that's that's would probably be my read Mm -hmm. um but i do i do think that situations where folks are very vulnerable like obviously a slave a chattel slavery system Mm -hmm. does make it a lot easier for folks who do have various proclivities, whatever, whether it's narcissism or whatever kind of cruelty, whatever, to mm-hmm. act it out unrestrained and to manifest whatever their pathology is on a helpless population in ways that can make their issues seem more acute or, or more uh, appear more acute. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, that's all I can really think of right now. Well, I appreciate you calling in. It's it's all right. Ask some pretty thoughtful questions, Sierra. It's been good talking okay. to you. All right, all right. Keep the faith, my friend. Bye bye. All right, Sele or Sele? How do you pronounce your name? Sele. Sele. What's in your mind tonight? Okay, I I was going. I'm calling to talk about the episode. I just mm-hmm. agree, of course, in. I won't make you lose your time in, in repeating everything everybody said. I, I completely agree. And I'm blaming the victim had become something that is so usual in, I don't know, since, oh, she got raped. But what was she wearing to, mm-hmm. to, oh, she's poor. Maybe she didn't work hard enough or she wasn't bright enough to deserve it or something. And so, oh, well, I'm, mm. I'm one. Um, but it's that's global, right? Like that's that's something that comes with with meritocracy, I guess. Mm. And here's the thing: I I was listening to I, I listened to the episode, and I had a question. But first, I was listening to Jonathan, who I love, and he's great. But I don't think he he's aware of the of the actual situation of what. Um, Ben was talking about, right? Like he he knows this stuff very well, and part of the reasons, right? Like he was uh, that you ask him why why doesn't it change, right? Like why did it keep like that? And in Argentina, we had uh, first our first vote, real vote in 1928, and uh, that first president decided to nationalize oil. And guess what happened, right? Like we got our first coup, 
and another time we the IMF was formed and we yeah we wasn't sure we didn't want to get in and so guess what happened we got cool and the military put us into the IMF mm. and that happened six times and the last one was was the last one was so terrible that it was the last one right we had 40 years of democracy now so we are kind of a 40 year old country in a way mm. but that didn't go without intervention that didn't go without um here's the thing right like in latin america all the libertadores you know these people that that bought spain they all died either murdered by the state or in exile this there is this global elites that this global elites know this 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 elites in these countries that that were before they were created that right like they there is an inside people that that play for this multinational our the last minister of economy that we had that got us into the IMF, right? Like after we had paid and with no necessity, he was working for the JP Morgan and then he went back to working for the JP Morgan. So there is these connections, right? Like um, all the the international tribunals that we have to adhere are in the US or in the or in London or stuff like that. So even if the IMF themselves says and they said it and they wrote it, this is a, a loan that shouldn't should have never happened, right? It was completely legal. It it violated the laws of the country and it violated the regulations of the IMF. We cannot go and have. I would like I was pro going, pro not paying everything and going. But the thing is that we never ever won won in any of these tribunals elsewhere. So, in a way, uh, and I'm speaking for for Latin America. In a way, every every time we wanted to try to stay out of it we we got a coup so mm. our, our our presidents were thrown and we had a, a military dictatorship that put everything in place and, and a most likely uh, neoliberal um, neoliberal the, the intention was right like this isn't written in my country we had uh, the trials for the military dictatorship that we had we was a first one, right? And we also had the trial for Operation Condor because what started in Chile with Allende and Pinochet then extended to eight countries. And it was very clear and it's in writing. And well, these documents were founded in Paraguay because they didn't burn it, but also was were declassified from the U.S. So these documented uh, were these eight countries and the U.S., uh, Henry Kissinger was here at the time during that mm. time, and the thing is, it was very clear: it's the industrialization, it was like taking away our labor laws, uh, like all these reforms. But especially, like is this keeping the country desperate so they will sell not just their labor but their natural resources very cheap to the U.S. Not uh, and then buy, of course, the manufactured good. And the thing is that this happened over and over again. But what was my point? My point is that it's not that easy. It, it, right now, 
the we have you know how Ben mentioned this uh, pact that uh, he, that uh, China has with Brazil to commerce in their own currency, right? Mm -hmm. So staying out of the dollar, uh, we have that with China. It's called a swap, um, and we have that with Brazil now. And we have to do that with Brazil because we intended to have to make a common a common central bank and we intended to have a common currency, not to make something like the euro, just to commercialize in between the two of us, right? Like not mm -hmm. having to go to the dollars and not having to go to through SWIFT, which is something that Ben mentions as well, because that means that the US gotta say and got a say and had an option to sanction and had, has a note. So uh, then we, like a month after that, we got this woman, Laura Richardson, that you showed in your show. We had the second Blinken. We had the IMF and this woman called Gita. And that was uh, two weekends ago. And well, yeah, we have to say no to all the <laughs> the things we, we arranged with China. I won't explain you why, because it's, it's complicated, but the thing is, in order for us to import, how does any country get dollars, right? Like they haven't from export because we cannot print them. Mm -hmm. So if we need to import or buy anything from outside, not just uh, these natural resources, even if there is this kind of the, the machine that makes something here and it needs a replacement or a screw that goes into it or the plastic that finishes the whatever it is they're fabricating. Mm -hmm. We need dollars. And for that dollars to get in, we need we got we got them from exporting, right? But we also have to pay the IMF and that is also in dollars. So what we have to do is is not to give the money to the companies or the enterprises or how do you call it, these companies that fabricate things and give it to the IMF and they go bankrupt. Mm. Uh, so this is, this is a very, very shady thing. We are now in minus net reserves, seriously, like minus net reserves in our central bank. And, and all this obligation that we have to fulfill too. So it's not that easy. And the effect that the IMF, uh, the fact that, and and even right like these proxy wars that are happening now in Africa, uh, and Africa wasn't even allowed to industrialize, to get them to deindustrialize, right? Mm. Africa with all these natural resources, and not just having the 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 U.S., but also the British and also the French, right? And and having being independent later than us mm -hmm. they they were not even able to and they are so rich these countries that's why they when Jonathan was saying we don't see our potential it's not that we don't see our potential it's that every time right mm -hmm. these, these these external forces are so you know how it is to have a woman in a uniform to come and talk to your ministry, knowing that this woman is has behind the, the biggest army in the world is not a thing that you say no easily, you know? And the damage, and Ben was able to tell you a lot, but the, the if he had to tell you all the countries that are affected and 
all the ways and along the years this this thing is is so big yeah and, it it felt so big i mean honestly it was a two-hour episode and it felt like we were just scratching the surface and I'm like aware of that and also aware that I'm so deeply ignorant in this issue area in the first instance. I don't know. We're just gonna, if you guys can bear it, we're just going to have to keep having guests like him back and going over and over and through it and through it and maybe focusing in on one country or one region to try to get some clarity because I do think it's such, I mean, this is the story. Everything that comes up, everything that we skirt around on rising these little skirmishes that we have about, oh, is socialism good or bad? And Venezuela's, you know, economic problems, its own fault or sanctions. We talk about sanctions in Russia. We talk about it here, there, and a little bit. You know, we talk about Ukraine. We, we talk about Victoria Newland. We dip and dab all over the place. But, like, to really fully understand the entire global narrative and what organizations like the IMF's purpose really are, um, the pattern of wars and coups and governmental overthrows that we understand. Like it's all, it's, it's the story, but it's big story. And I, I know personally, I feel an obligation to have, be much better at telling it in a way that seems less conspiratorial and more um, consistent and historically rooted, because I do think it really helps folks to understand why they should be more distrustful of American foreign interventions and so much of the media narrative that is about maintaining the kind of global economic status quo. Can I ask you something? Because you, Please. it might be a difficult question, but you asked Ben, you asked Ben how, why, why, uh, why, like, why was he seen as something that speaks so badly of the U.S. and stuff like that? And... And I got insulted so much here because of trying to explain that because it's not that difficult and it's not conspiratorial. It's simple economics, right? Like if you go with the numbers, it's it's very easy to see. And and I never meant it, right? Like there was how can I with the Robbie Wade, right? Like mm -hmm. the the marches of the women in the in the embassy, in the U.S. embassy here, were maybe bigger than the ones I saw in TV from the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. Like, people are not blaming it on on the people, of the citizens, right, of the U.S., because it makes no sense. It's just, it makes no sense. But then you speak about it, and you tell facts, and you are accused of hating white people, etc. Like, I won't repeat it. Because apparently Latinos are one ethnicity and yeah, that's another thing. Uh, but there is this, for on one way, there is this, when facts are presented, there is this sense of attack that apparently gets a reaction. And on the other hand, there is this, this fear. What is it that frightens you so much about the, the, that the world stops using dollar. Well, that's the thing. I, I just, what I think, the reason I asked him that is because I know that that's a criticism that Ben gets a lot. So I wanted to preemptively allow him an opportunity to speak to those people to the extent that they were listening to this episode. But also it's an acknowledgement on some level that I, I know how strongly Americans have been propagandized to value U.S. supremacy because I've experienced it. And I think that even 
if, if I can feel a little bit, of, you know, knowing what I know and knowing better and having the politics that I have, if even I can feel a little tug of, ooh, what if the devil we know is better than the devil we don't know? Then I want to someone to someone to address that head on because if I'm feeling even that moment of hesitation, God knows that a number of Americans are going to think, well, you know, Benish is the leftist who is anti-American and he has lived out of the country for so many years and he just loves China and you know, I can I really trust his narrative if he won't even acknowledge that there are going to be winners and losers in this and some of us might be losers. Like, what, what is the truth there? And so I just wanted him to get to that a little bit because the narrative that we've been receiving, the American exceptionalism that we've all been brought up in, almost doesn't even recognize an alternative to the global order. And to the extent that we recognize it, it's op- absolutely 100% considered to be bad. You know, so I do think you have to kind of take it head on. Okay. Okay, so it's not uh, uh, it's not that you're worried because, right? Like before you, it was England, and England is a rock. It's not it has <laughs> not the re- sorry, but it's true. They they don't have the size, and that they have the the natural resources that you have. Like there is nothing is nothing close to it, right? Like you have a lot of natural resources, a lot of uh, universities, a lot of prepared people. The thing is. I'm I'm sure there will be some, like you know, uh, adapting to do, but this let's say France, right? Like these empires had survived as countries, and they are not the poorest countries in the world. So, no, of course not. But also, like I I'm <laughs> I don't mean I'm not saying I agree with this, obviously. But a lot of Americans would be like, oof, I don't want to be France. I don't want to be England. I don't want to be a declining empire. I mean, like, that's that's the thought. Like, they look at who used to be in charge. We look at who used to be in charge. And we think, oh, y'all couldn't win a war without us. We had to go and build a Marshall Plan so that you can even have your cities back after World War II. I mean, that is a very American mindset. So whereas you might look to those countries and say, Oh, they're great. They have universal health care. They've got great infrastructure. People enjoy a higher quality of living there than most other places. They've got a lot of stuff America doesn't have. Like, who would be upset about being a declining power? Those those places seem better than America. Americans have been propagandized just, like, not to see it that way in large part. We think having, you know, 10, 15, 100 different kinds of peanut butter in Costco <laughs> and to be able to wave our flag and stick it in all these places all over the world and say that we're the richest country in the world and the biggest army in the world and all of that stuff is worth more. It's I it's did. fucked up. I obviously don't agree with it, but that's no, how a lot no. of people think. It makes a lot clearer because I thought it was about economics, which that right, like it doesn't make sense because there there is a lot of resources that would be used in, in your country, for instance, right? Like there is mm-hmm. advantage to it. And as you said, there is all these other countries that are, might not be as rich right now, but have many, have many like the, the health thing in, in the UK is so much better than, mm-hmm. than not. Yeah. But yes, I, I get it. I, I get, I get what, propaganda does um yeah it's it's sad and do you think that that's that's another question because what i try to tell people right is about how much suffering and and i try not uh, to be very clear that is not that 
that I'm perfectly aware that they had a, that he didn't have a say on that, right? That the U.S. got so rich out of because there is the 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 Central America the Central America part on and the food company and so there is so much that that makes it that maybe in the U.S. products were much cheaper, right? And there is a benefit, but it's not a benefit that you chose. And so I thought maybe if I showed how much these people were suffering, they will change their mind. But yeah, they see it as an attack. Look, I think that with time, uh, Americans can start to see themselves differently and to reassess our values um, and come to realize that our way of doing things is not inuring to the benefit of most of us. I think that one of the things that the Bernie campaigns managed to do was help people to understand that what we, we present as individual failings, like being too poor to afford healthcare are very, very common and our systemic failures, not individual ones. And there's something very empowering in that. And the next step is helping people to realize that in other countries, they, they don't have that. They don't have, something called medical bankruptcy. They don't have the things that we accept as the norm. But we are, again, propagandized so heavily to never know. I mean, I used to say in the Bernie campaign, you need to do more talking about how Medicare for all comes into effect. Because it seems, even if people support it, it seems too abstract. Once you simplify how it would come into effect, then there seems to be lower and lower excuses for why Few and few excuses for why we're not doing it. So what I mean by that is like Bernie saying the thing that he only said very rarely, which is the first year we make uh, we extend Medicare to everyone under 18 and uh, everyone uh, over 55. The next year we drop it 10 years. Next year we drop it 10 years. And next year we drop it 10 years. So four years down the line, everybody has Medicare, Medicare, right? That's like an easy to wrap your brain around thing. It's the same when you talk about, you know, I thought we should promote more stories about people who had lived in other countries. There's like an overseas, it's like Americans abroad or whatever, and they have like a caucus or something and they vote. And um, we did videos with them. They endorsed Bernie and we did vote videos with them about what, how their healthcare experiences differed in whatever country they lived in versus the United States. And those stories like blew people's minds. I don't think we told them enough. But the idea that you would just waltz into a hospital, oh, I broke my leg in Sweden and I just rolled into the hospital and they didn't ask me for a dime or credit card, anything. People just show their little local ID or what have you and they patch you up and send you on your way. Like that is just mind exploding for an American. You want to hear something, something funny. I don't know if funny, but uh, with all the economic troubles that we have, we managed to keep public uh, public health and our universities, the best universities we have are free. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's rough. The fact that you're going to get bankrupt by that, right? Like, because maybe yep. it sounds Sweden, right? But Argentina has it. Well, yes, I think <laughs> India actually. I mean, I'm not saying it's the best healthcare in the world, but I think no, India has but- universal healthcare. Exactly, exactly. And, and yeah, we had our hospitals might be falling down, but the best doctors are there because yeah. they, they have the more experience and they have this 
question of curriculum, right? Like mm -hmm. if you went through a hospital and worked in a hospital for a certain amount of years, right? That is uh, something that you get asked to Congress to stuff like that, right? Like it. So in a way, yeah, when things are better, hospitals are better. But the same with university, people from all from all over South America that has that have private universities come here to to become doctors and and has the highest standards. So it's is yeah, there's a lot of lying. Yes, uh, there there is a book that it was published that is about all the lies you're told about economics. It was something like homos falsus or something like that. They called it. All these these lies that 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 the economy of the country is the same as the economy of your house. So if mm -hmm. you spend more, that's a fucking lie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that has been fed right into everybody, I guess, for for so long that yeah, it's it's, it's, it's very difficult to see that if you stop spending a little in in arms, you're going to get. So much yeah, and that's, you know, that's the job. That's why I think that, you know, left media is so important. That's why I think there's a lot to be gained out of various left political campaigns if they keep those messages front and center. There's a lot of work to do to to deprogram folks here, but I, I appreciate you weighing in, um, Sela, because people need people need the, the kind of international perspective, and so this has been an interesting chat. No, thank you for, for answering my questions. Thank you so much. Thank you again. Keep the faith. Uh, let's go to uh, ba, 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 ba. A. Are you A calling in from India? Are you with us, A? Can you unmute yourself? A going once, A going twice. Did I catch you off guard? No, no. It was taking some time on oh. the app. Okay, no worries. How are you doing, A? I'm doing good. Yes, it is me from India. How are All you right, doing? long time to chat. Yep, super long. I have, uh, man, it's been so long that I just have to get rid of all my thoughts for all the previous episodes, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> I think you might have to, A. Eh? Yeah, yeah. But I think I can speak to what one, uh, one of the callers. It was interesting what she brought up, you know, trying to get into the psyche of slave owners. Mm -hmm. Um. I mean, I think I can speak a little to that because India is currently continues to be in a form of slavery because uh, uh, domestic help is sort of the, you know, the ubiquitous norm in India for like mm. middle class and up. Mm -hmm. And that's entirely an unorganized sector and basically runs like slavery where if you're lucky, you have a nice uh, employer. And if you're not, you don't, but you don't really have any rights, recourse, entitlement, sense of entitlement or anything. Mm. Um, and I mean, and, and what you said is pretty much sort of the lay of the land that when, when, when it's such a, such a norm, then it's really a more a cultural situation rather than an individual psychic situation. Because for instance, like uh, the apartment I'm in, you know, it came, there was, you know, there's already a lady who, who, who was, uh, take, you know, the caretaker of it for the previous tenant mm -hmm. um, and when I came in like getting rid of her for any sort of moral compunctions I have would be would have for her would have been like actually losing her means of uh, income you mm -hmm. know where like so she wanted to stay on and so then I kind of you know I'm doing some, some kind of you know like trying to attempt 
you know, proper employment standards with her in terms of leaves and, you know, whatever, some kind of mm-hmm. basic human mm-hmm. way of how one would arrange it. But just, but just by, because of the forces at play, you know, I'm participating in this system. Yeah. So, you know, so I think like, yeah, as in a, for when something becomes widespread, I don't know if the answers lie in individual psyche as much as the forces that made that happen, I suppose. I tend to agree. Yeah. So I really wanted to speak about, uh, I have no international perspective on the de-dollarization because I don't get economics at all. (laughs) That makes two of us. (laughs) (laughs) I want to speak about, but I do get comms. So I want to speak about like, you know, what I've been noticing, it's quite fascinating. It's been a bit fascinating for me. Every time you've been bringing up the question of uh, electoralism and the value of supporting someone in the US primaries, um, etc., Mm-hmm. Um, the responses, like, and maybe it's because sort of you come from a comms perspective, but the people you're speaking to are, you know, like, I mean, Shama is a, pol- a, pol- a politician, I suppose, or someone sort of doing some kind of, someone's an academic or someone's doing organizing. So maybe from their perspectives, it makes sense. But the responses to my mind focus too much on, like, they keep going to, but, you know, we know that they won't, I mean, they will be screwed over by the party it's unlikely that this will happen, that will happen. And it's very sort of success focused uh, mm-hmm. in terms of like, will will such a candidacy actually succeed in any meaningful way electorally? While to me, it seems that um, for such a young movement uh, where sort of, I mean, like the representation of any kind of left politics in American mainstream politics is super young, right? It's as as young as one person, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is Bernie. So for this, the success metric may not be sort of how far the candidacy goes, but maybe what, I mean, what the what the guest in the most recent episode was, like he didn't seem to like the term, the Overton window, but it's it's isn't that like a very real, tangible um, success what which Bernie achieved where people are talking about things they didn't even know to talk about before yeah I mean I wouldn't be here without the Bernie 2016 I'm not talking about working on 2020 I'm talking about the radicalization process that happened via the 2016 campaign mm-hmm. I know that Nick Cruz over at RBN has said something similar about his experience door knocking in 2016 mm-hmm. um so many people who have platforms that now speak to these issues were able to grow people like crystal ball and rising as a show and breaking points as a show all came out of this, the energy around the Bernie movement. Um, you know, that, you know, we like it or not critique, whatever takes they have that you don't like, whatever. It seems to me to be a net good to now have something called bread tube and left media that speaks to these issues as a matter of course, whereas when I was growing up, that just wasn't the case. So I also think, you know, we all appreciated the um, kind of performative value, the stunt value of something like force the vote, even if it were not to be successful in actually getting a pot, you know, a successful vote on Medicare for all. We all appreciate that folks like Jose Vega will shout um, or, or Medea Benjamin will shout at these events that are supposed to be about press freedom where they ignore Julian Assange, mm-hmm. even if it doesn't mean the New York Times magically is like, oh, yeah, Julian Assange should be free. Let's pressure the Biden administration in our op-ed section. You know, we all understand that the effect 
is not one-to-one causal Mm -hmm. in those instances. But I, my understanding and to really give a good faith um, steel man of what they're saying, what, Mm -hmm. what people disagree with me are saying, I think to them, the trade-off is largely that people will become convinced because of the nature of electoralism is different than the nature of some of these other kind of protest movements that there is going to be an expectation that you can win and then people will become more demoralized and perhaps not invest in other more effective efforts because they invest in electoralism. And I, I take that seriously, right? I, I think I've been very consistent about how frustrating Bernie's campaigns have been, the fact that he unwound them, the fact that we have now been living in two two years, three years now of demoralization post-2020. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think I, I think I've been right there within the middle of the pack of people who have been making those exact kind of complaints. I was the one who had those various candidates on last year who were left candidates and good people, but who I agreed with the audience mm-hmm. were kind of barking up the wrong tree and were may, maybe wasting money they didn't have. But... <clears throat> To me, the answer to that is to be just very, very clear that, excuse me, I'm sorry, weighing in the primary is not the same as a general, does not guarantee general election support, and is more about a vote against Joe Biden and a way to use a mechanism that's already happening, whether we want to or not, to undermine the perception that the Democratic Party candidate has a mandate. Mm-hmm. Why not? Just be very clear that this does not mean that your criticisms of Marianne or your criticisms of RFK Jr. aren't legitimate, as were, by the way, substantive criticisms of Bernie Sanders. Mm. But the question to me is, can you gain something by platforming these people, pushing them to say more of what we want them to say, pushing them to call out Biden for shutting down the primary process, reordering the state's uh, um, election timing, you know, preventing there from being debates, all of this stuff. The way that it's exposing the corruption of the political establishment, all of that is like very useful to the overwhelming left project. Yeah, I, I mean, it seems to me that uh, if I've understood uh, how you characterize their sort of worry correctly, and it's about if people invest in propping up these candidates, and then since that is most likely going to fail, they might get demoralized. Mm-hmm. That the, so the people who are likely to be putting in these efforts are the people who are already leftists right and they're and they might put channel their efforts to these candidates well but uh the benefit would be to sort of the larger like all the shit libs who might hear more discourse which might shift them i mean Mm -hmm. you know like i'm I'm assuming most of the people in this chat many began as well-meaning libs who then were you know were red pilled into leftism i mean i remember there was one caller in your call in a long time ago at the airport. <laughs> when I, I was at the airport, sorry, <laughs> when I was listening to that episode. Um, who is some, you know, some very young guy who spoke about how the Black Lives Matter protests were kind of very galvanizing and politicizing uh, and in a good way radicalizing for him and his sort of cohort, um, which was sort of very refreshing because. Uh, a lot of the focus in many of the calls had been on sort of the failures of that movement. You know, so I mean, it's, it's like, I mean, I'm bringing that up, I think, to say that if the peop- the leftists who would channel their efforts towards these candidates, we running the, they, if they get demoralized, or the, you know, from mobilization, 
is to me seems like a smaller trade off versus if these channel candidates are propped up a bit then the message reaching more people and converting them is quite a yeah. huge one i would imagine i mean i think it's pretty telling i see you know neoliberal tears much love to you but people are saying well but knocking on doors and giving money it's demoralizing guys i don't know how many times i can say then don't knock on doors and don't give money you you won't find me on record i spend a lot of time being recorded hours and hours every week i'm a content factory and you won't find me telling anybody to knock on a door or give money to any of the candidates that are running in the democratic primary you can't catch me you guys like you just you can't catch me you can't catch me in it um you know so not that you said it about me neoliberal tears but i see you saying down here why should i convince my friends to knock door for a primary that's rigged from the start um, yeah, it's rape people make a statement isn't a reason. Then don't convince your friends to knock doors for a primary. I'm not I'm not trying to convince anybody to knock doors for anybody. All I'm saying is that I, also I just want to point out that it's while all of us are having this conversation about locking doors and giving, the overwhelming majority of Americans neither knock doors nor give money ever in their entire lives. Like this is a hyper engaged group of people. What I'm trying to speak to is the fact that for most people they won't even vote in the primary at all. They won't vote for Biden. Most people don't vote in Democratic primaries. But to the extent that the lowest level of engagement that you can have with the easiest lift that costs you monetarily nothing and relatively little in terms of your time, relatively little, still costs, but relatively little in terms of your time, is voting in the primary. And it's, it kills me that like now I have to spend my whole life Hours and hours of my time reiterating the same argument when there's a world where everyone just said, hey, yeah, okay, fine. Fuck these candidates. I wish we had better. But sure, I'll vote against Biden in the primary and we can all just move on. (laughs) And we can have a nice little small little protest moment going where at very least we can give a middle finger to the Democrats and the Democratic primary. Instead of the alternative, where a bunch of leftists argue with each other for the whole of the primary season, do nothing in the alternative. Propose nothing on the alternative. Biden wins the primary in the landslide, and then they can spend the next six months complaining about how terrible Biden is. And then a bunch of the same people will line up and vote for him in the general election anyway. You know, it's like, I just don't know what we're getting out of this. What are we getting out of this? What are you, what is the gain? What is the gain of not doing anything at all? electorally with this electoral system. I'm not saying you're not doing anything at all. Obviously people have other projects outside of electoralism, but what is, what is the, what is, what is the the game plan? What is the advantage of casting zero vote in the primary versus a vote for anybody but Biden? And what, certainly what is the disadvantage of the left media in general kind of propping up these candidates for when they say good things? Uh, I would like, we, we live in a world where people are very ready to say that Tucker Carlson did a good thing mm-hmm. in letting Glenn and Jimmy come on his show, even though he does white nationalism 90% of the time. But we are all like, like you're, you're, uh, you're clear headed, tell it like it is leftist. If you are willing to admit that Tucker did something good and letting some pro Assange voices on the show. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you say, oh, it's a good thing that Marianne supports Medicare for all, despite disagreeing with her foreign policy, you're a shill. Yeah. It makes no sense. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like it makes no sense. 
you can like some of what someone does and not like some of what somebody does, whether the name is Tucker Carlson or Marianne Williamson. But the all or nothing thinking only seems to come into play when it's Marianne Williamson and, and for some other people, RFK Jr. Yeah. I just I don't get it. I suppose it's just more, I don't know, is it more like intellectual capital if you can spot like the diamond in the rough of Tucker Carlson versus sort of the possibility of being perceived as naive if you're supporting someone who's trying something. I don't know, it just feels like a lot of sort of this kinds of gamesmanship. Yeah, and I want to be clear, like, even though RFK Jr. isn't my candidate, I feel like I've actually been going very hard for him on the podcast, <laughs> partly because I'm trying to avoid the implication that I, I'm tr- telling anyone to vote for Marianne. Now, if you ask me personally who my personal candidate would be if, if the choice between them, I will give you an honest answer. But I'm honestly not even trying to weigh in like that. I want to be very clear. If you hate Marianne's guts, fine, vote for RFK Jr. Maybe someone else will enter the race later. I, I am not proselytizing here. All I'm saying is maybe don't vote for Biden. Like, vote against Biden. <laughs> That's it. How yeah. widespread is uh, prime primary voting? Like, it's. Is- I think it's low. I want to say something like 25%. Let me Google it. How many people vote in presidential primaries? I mean, for instance, like, would this be a increased turnout and channel it towards these alternative candidates? effort or would it be a turnout already exists and one has to just channel it this way effort i think you would i think ideally it would be the former increased turnout Mm. and channeling it i mean i think you could really exploit the fact that primaries are relatively low turnout to maybe put a real dent in it Mm. um let me see no this is blah 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 why can't i find this sometimes wiki just doesn't tell you what you want to hear right i don't want to know specifically about what's went on in this 2016 primaries i want to know what percent of americans vote in presidential primaries you know that's what i want to know i want to know how politically engaged americans are (laughs) And the internet does not want to tell me. Well, maybe one of you can be Googling this while I'm... Oh, here it is. Joshua says 25 to 30% primary turnout. Yeah. Compared to what? Like 50% general election turnout? Maybe 60%? Mm-hmm. Well, that oh, that's, that's tough because it is small enough where banging this drum could lead to something. It's, it's not large enough where this would feel like a drop in the water. Right. But, yeah. If, if Jill Stein can get 3% in a general election mm. and that shows up as 6% in a primary, mm. do you know what I mean? Yeah. If RFK Jr. is polling at 20% and Marianne is polling at whatever it is, 5%, 9%, I think actually it was, if 30% of the electorate is voting against Biden mm. and our voters vote, the, not, the anti-Biden voters vote and the average Americans don't vote, and suddenly that 30% is doubled... <laughs> as a percentage because we we are coming out in stronger numbers. I mean, I'm make, making up numbers here, but you can very quickly see how you can get to a world where Biden's in a struggle zone. Yep. That's how Donald Trump won the primary. Only 30% of Republicans ever liked him, but it was a split field and everyone hated everybody else. And he won. And then everybody fell in line in the general. 
Damn, you're gonna you're gonna have to continue this upstream struggle of yours, Brian, and convince people to vote for people not Biden because it could make a difference. That it might mean it could. I mean, RFK Jr. like is literally a twenty percent. Like that's crazy. Yeah, name recognition alone, I'm sure, goes a long way in just knowing someone exists and is doing something. Yeah. Um, well, Lambaster, you can leave the Dems, and no one's gonna notice. Because you already don't vote in Democratic primaries. <laughs> like, I don't want to tell you, all the people who are saying that, like, leave the Dems in the general. Vote, like, but you, here, in the general, there is another party to vote for. You can vote for a Green Party candidate. In the primary, it's a Democratic primary. Whatever third party primaries are happening, to the extent that they're happening, are happening elsewhere. There's not, you don't have to give up your vote for the preferred party to vote in the Democratic party. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there, as far as I know, there are no Green Party primaries. You're literally just doing nothing with that vote. In the general, it's different. In the general, there's an argument that you should use your voting power and register your preference for a non-Democrat, non-Republican candidate. I completely agree with that. I am literally one of America's most famous and hated Green Party voters, okay? Like, you don't have to lecture me about that. But in a primary... It's not like it's not like Jill Stein is is on the ballot and you're not able to vote for her because you're voting for RFK Jr. It's literally just nothing or vote against Biden. It's it's like it's like being given the option to weigh in. It, it, it's like it's like it's like the person who won valedictorian over you in, in high school and you find out that they are running to be head of their kids PTA and you fucking hate their guts cuz they were a bully <laughs> and they didn't deserve the prize and you because you happen to be in the school district get to vote now you don't really care who about the PTA your kids are grown like your kids are senior you don't give a shit but like why not just vote against them cuz you hate them yeah <laughs> like, out of spite doing things out of spite is very is great it's so a spite just vote for whoever else is running against your enemy. That's it. That's all it is. <laughs> well, I, I will. I will leave you to it. Keep you. Yes, you're right. You are a content factory. Keep it coming. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> well, thanks for calling in. A at all hours. I know it's uh, a big time difference, but I always like hearing from you. Thank you. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. All right, Nathan. What is on your mind? Hey, Bree. Hello. What do you think about this evening? So there, there's been a lot of, uh, I don't know how to get, how, how could I put it, negative energy. So I'm going to be the, normally I don't do this, but I feel like I need to add in something a little more positive energy. So I'm going to talk about Lizzo for some reason. Okay. I'm into well, it. Yeah. So Lizzo was in Tennessee doing a, um, doing a concert. And recently they passed a, a law in Tennessee banning drag. In, in public places. So she got a bunch of drag queens to perform with her on stage during her concert. Mm. And it's just, it's, it's kind of funny because mm. it was pro it was kind of the most tame thing you could imagine. I saw a video of it and they were just, you know, normal drag performers. They weren't really super sexualized or anything, but they were just dancing with Lizzo on stage. And then Matt Walsh of all people, the 40 year old virgin had to, had to, come out of the internet woodwork to go call to have Lizzo arrested. Wait, seriously? She Yes, he did. Wait, they arrested Lizzo? No, Matt Walsh wanted them to arrest Lizzo. How did 
I miss this story? Oh my gosh, I'm putting this in the rising slack. Honestly, that it probably should go in there because this is this kind of gives me the same vibes as the uh, Supreme Court case about the bong hits for Jesus, where there's a law out there that is likely in the future going to be declared unconstitutional, but then that you have a group of people who decide to press the boundaries a little bit, like Lizzo did with the drag queen, or, or, oh. what, the, or what the or what those people did with the bong hits for Jesus signs. Yeah, this was back in April, so I don't know that I can make this news timely enough to cover on Rising, but this is funny. Mm-hmm. That's wild. I don't know how I missed that one. I missed it too for a little while, and I, and I don't know why I missed it, but I did. But but I did eventually see it today. That's great because we've t- we've talked about a million Lizzo cancel culture stories. We talked about Lizzo changing the lyric to her song because people in the disability community were mad. We talked about Matt Walsh being mad at Lizzo for playing that ancient flute. Uh, <laughs> there, she's been in a lot of these stories, and the audience likes to hear about her. I would have loved to seen one where. She's not being framed as the one who's being overly sensitive to cancel culture. She's the one that the the bros are trying to cancel. Which is sort of what's happening is that normally I wouldn't get invested in these kind of stories. But the moment I saw it, just my kind of civil, my, my, my civil libertarian instincts turned, turned on. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of like, there's a, there is something here. There, there's something here about civil liberties. You, you talked about the liberty interest. And mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest. I, I realized in high school, okay, like I, I didn't even graduate high school. And I realized definitively that two men having consensual sex in the privacy of, of the bedroom is peaceful assembly. And I saw that word in the Bill of Rights. And I said, okay, so the Constitution protects peaceful assembly. This thing is this thing is peaceful assembly. Hmm. Then you can get rid of all these laws. Say same thing with the drag stuff too. Like I don't know. Maybe there's some argument to say where drag isn't peaceful assembly, but I've never heard any good argument for where drag is not is not a peaceful assembly, especially in the way that Lizzo was doing it or the way that drag performers typically do it. It's in an enclosed space, so you don't have to go. It's usually adults only, but there could be, you know, teenagers there or like older at or older adolescents. And also usually there is it's just a whole it's it's a part of a whole performance with music and dancing and stuff like that. It's not just the drag itself. So I don't see why that wouldn't fall under peaceful assembly. But apparently there are evangelicals who maybe would disagree with that. If I had a grinder profile, I would immediately change what I'm looking for to peaceful assembly because that's kind of <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> but, but, you, uh, but you know what I mean when I say that, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, All of the – yeah. I think – look, I, I really like being able to use kind of libertarian arguments, founding fathery arguments as to why – you know, you've heard me say – how much, you know, the founding fathers were worried about the power of unlimited corporations and they had limited charters where they were only able to incorporate for 20 years because they didn't want there to be mm-hmm. the large amounts of money that could undermine democracy. Like, I like, I know how persuasive that is to a certain kind of person, so I like to make those kinds of arguments. I wish that it didn't have to, everything didn't have to be framed in those terms and mm-hmm. yada yada, but I do think that there is value to them, especially because... 
increasingly I've become, I've started to feel like we're just having the same argument over and over again. Every news story in rising feels like the same argument where we're balancing liberty interests. And because of how much we value certain kinds of people, how much we value certain kinds of rights, who is in power and who isn't in power, people come down in different ways about whose liberty interests need to be protected. But there's no rule. There's no booklet you can consult to say who's right and wrong in any given situation. We are living in a society and we have competing interests and we have to decide as a society who is the most vulnerable. I would argue that's the metric that we should be using in terms of who gets more latitude as we balance these competing interests. But some people, a lot of these kind of, I, I, I'm not saying that the free speech value isn't a good value, but a lot of the people who are kind of like free speech is their entire personality types, you know, they act as though just saying that free speech, like just citing constitutional protections answers the question. And it doesn't because the whole point of First Amendment law is that people have competing speech interests. People have, you know, where does my freedom of speech run up against your freedom to not get trampled in a crowd or be the victim of violence that has been um, incited? Like everything, the whole of law, the whole of constitutional law is about competing interests. And, and balancing tests and then you come out into the real world and everyone's just acting like you point to a freaking piece of parchment you know with a bunch of with a john hancock on the bottom that solves the world's problems yeah i i'm not really in a position to resolve that i haven't thought about it enough and i haven't been educated enough on that but i'm just gonna before i go i'm gonna leave with one thing which is so that so they were having the drag performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know those stories where the people go out and protest these drag performances in parks or at um, public uh, public libraries and such. Mm-hmm. They'll have you know people going out and protesting it, and then the people who were actually there are obviously feeling not the best about it having those protesters there. But honestly if the cops were to go and try and remove them, assuming that they were acting peacefully and they weren't being violent, I would be against that because even though their peaceful assembly is running up against your peaceful assembly, the actual harm of it, it's like a drop in the bucket. It's like a little Mm -hmm. ping. It's like, you know, it's like, um, it's, it's like throwing a dart at sheet metal. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. there are harms that are really bad, but being but like being exposed to anti-trans protesters or anti-drag or whatever, mm-hmm. that's that's like a that's just a ping yeah. on, a, on a metal sheet compared to serious harm that I know people have suffered and I have personally suffered. Yeah. So maybe so it may be just a lack of sympathy, but I also feel there's a serious substantive difference between the harm I just talked about and like someone being beaten up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I com- completely agree. That's, but that's what we're talking about with, you know, the interest. I mean, I think a lot of people on paper would look at the interest of like getting shouted down versus the interest of getting physically assaulted and say, well, yeah, you know, <laughs> those are, those are not equal. Those are not the same, but for some right. reason our brains get broken and we can't make those kinds of evaluations uh nine out of ten times because of our priors and our politics but i appreciate you calling in nathan this has been enjoyable thanks for the lizzo update yes <laughs> all right keep the faith you too bye jenny i am coming to you what is on your mind this evening 
Oh man, I have so many things on my mind. I don't even know where to go with this. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm someone who at the age of 21 was sent on a medical certificate into a state mental hospital. Mm. I had just given birth to my first baby and had what is termed a postpartum psychosis. Mm. And I was breastfeeding my daughter and I did not want to go on medications because of that. And so for 28 days while I was in that hospital, I refused to be medicated. Mm. And they uh, sent me before a judge. I went to court. I refused to have any sort of um, attorney represent me. I, I said what I wanted to the judge. And at the end of the sentence, he said 90 days in force uh, medications. Mm. And in that moment, Brie, an activist was born. Mm. Because when you have your rights taken away and you're forced, I had to take a cocktail of drugs for 14 months. They had me so snowed, I could barely think for over oh a God. year. And um, at the end of that experience, I remember getting on my knees and praying and just saying, Father, I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to get better. Mm -hmm. There has to be a way for me to get better and live my life without these meds. Because all the psychiatrists I worked with, they said I was going to be on lithium for the rest of my life. They diagnosed me manic depressive. Mm. It, it was like a death sentence, you know, and I was 21 mm. just starting my life. So, you know, from that day to this, I have read a lot of books. I had four more kids. I've mm. taken psychiatric meds just for one brief suicidal depression I had in 2012. But mm. I've, I've mostly done all this stuff meds. And I believe I've found solutions to very, very serious problems. You know, a psychosis is nothing to trifle with. Mm -hmm. And so I have decided opinions on this. I shared a lot early on in the chat when we were talking more about mental health. But you can nourish your brain with food, vitamin mm -hmm. supplements, and herbs, mm -hmm. essential oils. You can literally nourish your brain. You don't have to give yourself a chemical lobotomy. And there's a pretty famous doctor, Peter Bregan, I put several of his links in the chat, who has been termed the conscience of psychiatry. He's been brought in to testify at many, many court trials where people committed crimes while they were under the haze of psychiatric meds. Mm. And so he has been the one who has articulated. He, he basically was responsible for getting electric shock therapy out of hospitals. Mm. One man crusade back in the 60s. It was Dr. Bregan who did that. They brought it back. He didn't know. But... Um, he is just a powerhouse of information. And so anybody who's, who's interested in learning the other side, because all we see in here is the drug, the drug ads on TV and big pharma's talking points. And there's this notion that the only way you can help the mentally ill is to get them better medications. That, you know, that's just what is in the zeitgeist right now. And my message, and it's been a message for over 30 years, is there's another path. And so I feel pretty passionate about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know much about this, but my general feeling is that not not that I am as interested in kind of undermining the effect, efficacy of various kinds of pharmaceuticals, but that there is a real disinterest in the medical community at looking at the role that you know traditional medicine and diet and other kinds of lifestyle changes can affect your health outcomes. 
And these days, we know so much about how much diet can affect your long-term cancer prognoses and all these other kinds of interactions. We were talking a little bit about the interaction between um, uh, schizophrenia and other kind of psychotic breaks and your environment and certain kind of drug use and things like that. And it's just wild to me that knowing what we know, that there isn't more of investment in research into alternative types of interventions. And I think there's obvious reasons why there's not a bunch of R&D. If you can't sell it, if you can just buy it in the grocery store, if you can't patent it and make a million, billion dollars off of it, the medical community has much less of an interest in exploring it. But it, it really does a disservice to people, and your story is so compelling and I'm just so glad that you were able to get better. Yeah, it's it's really been a miracle. And I know mental illness exists. There's Thomas Satz. He said, Oh, there's no such thing as mental illness. That's not me. I believe people become mentally ill. But I also believe the idea that if you've had this break with reality, that is your future till the end of days mm-hmm. is a is a lie. And you can heal, you can get better, you can have a life. And I see a situation like this young man on the subway and I just, I just ache for his, what he went through, you know, I have nothing but compassion and schizophrenia is tricky. There's no question that it's tricky. It's the most difficult to treat, but I still believe we can come at it with a humane perspective and we don't necessarily have to lock them up, but I, you know, there are no easy answers with it. I just know that I've healed myself and I've had so many moms, especially who've, who've shared with me that my story was so influential, influential in their thinking, whether or not to breastfeed, whether or not to go on the meds, you mm-hmm. know, it, it's some of these drugs are, they cause deformities. You can't mm-hmm. take lithium when you're pregnant, it causes mm-hmm. deformities. And so, you know, the mom will go off the drug while she's pregnant and then go right back on and you know, I'm so grateful that I was able to nurse my babies because it meant everything to me, especially after kind of having it stolen away yeah. after the birth of my first baby. And so I, I just believe this investment in nutrition, everybody who's mentally ill has a B vitamin deficiency. That's a fact. And if we could come at it from that perspective, let's nourish these brains and then see what happens. But nobody's willing to do that because there's no money in it. Yeah. Jenny, may I ask what, what was happening with your family or other support around you when you got that 90-day sentence? I mean, did you how, how did you go about starting to advocate for yourself? Were you able to have people who supported you in that fight, or did you feel as though they were part of the pressure to take medication? I mean, what was, what was that like for you? I was hallucinating. I, I actually believed we were having a nuclear war. So in, in my hallucination, I saw bombs going off and mm. my parents and my husband, we'd only been married for a year. Mm. So my parents and my husband came to court. Of course, they were taking care of my daughter while I was in the hospital for those 28 days. And of course, they supported me in every possible way. They just wanted me to go on the medication because all they heard from everybody was she has to take these drugs. She just mm. has to. And I don't know that that was the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. And my point in saying that is when someone's in a mental health crisis, uh, taking them out of a mania or a psychotic episode with drugs can be very helpful. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not completely knocking the drugs. 
What I am questioning is, oh, if you've been psychotic, you have to take antipsychotic medications for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And that is where I just was like, no, I am not doing that. And, um, and I pivoted to the foods. And every day I'm out in my kitchen crafting these meals that nourish my brain with flax seeds, fresh ground flax seeds, and whole grains and beans and seeds, fresh herbs. I mean, the answers are there in our kitchen work. Mm. I have such a testimony of this. And, and my family, I, I, it would take me an hour to explain my family situation. Okay. But I've, I've, um, I've cut ties with my parents. They have mm. continued to believe that I'm mentally ill. My dad is a pedophile. I personally believe mm. that is the reason why I had the break in the first place. Mm. And so as I've healed and started making these claims about him, his brothers, others in the family molesting and raping me throughout my childhood, Mm-hmm. Uh, that created a wedge <laughs> in, our, in mm-hmm. our relationships and them to want to have the high need for Jenny to be medicated again. So they should shut up, you know, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. that that's the other side of it. And, and that has created a huge divide between me, all of my siblings, my mother, my dad's dad, mm-hmm. but my, my husband's still with me. He's such a love. And I really give him so much of the credit for helping me sticking by me. He, he said he was tempted to grab the baby and run when I was crazy. I mean, most young men are so freaked out by their wives getting suicidal or psychotic. They don't know what to do. Mm. In fact, he told me when I first was hospitalized, he said to the doctor, you mean there's a name for this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> all he knew is that for a month I'd been in this mania and I couldn't sleep and I was freaking out about all sorts of things. And, and then when I went into the full hallucination, that's when he called my parents and frantically, you know, something is wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I don't really question anymore how everything went down Yeah, because everybody was trying to do the right thing. Sure. But, you know, yeah. Well, Jenny, I, I'm all about healing. I'm, I'm so appreciative that you've been willing to be so open with us. This is, this has been such a great conversation. Is there anywhere that you talk about, um, some of your, you know, dietary interventions and food and stuff on the internet that people might be interested in looking at? Yeah, I wrote a book. I wrote it uh, in 1999, and I just share all in detail all the things I did to help myself. What's the, what's the name of it in case people want to check I'll it out? Dr- I'll just drop a link in the chat. It's called The Mother's Journey. Okay, perfect. I've, al- I've also been profiled in several books. Kathy Kendall Tackett wrote a book on postpartum depression. I was the whole final chapter of her book. Hmm. I was profiled in a Mothering Magazine article. I was profiled here in Boulder, Colorado. They had a fit magazine. I was on the cover of their magazine Hmm. when I was expecting my fourth baby. So I've shared my story a lot in interactions with various media. But at the end of the day, my bottom line message is, mom, get your butt in your kitchen and do the work necessary to create a healthy child. And in so doing, that will help you with your mental health. If mom's making the baby off microwave popcorn and soda and pizza, you know, she she can come up with a healthy baby doing that. There's no question. But the side effect from those choices is quite often a physical and then a mental breakdown. And you throw a botched birth or a C-section or a a really nasty birth into that mix, premature baby, you know, everybody's kind of sick, not healthy. That's where the mental breakdowns come for both moms and dads. Yeah. I, I, you know, I know people think things are woo-woo or whatever, but I, I have seen personally, my father suffered, and a lot of the greys suffer from really bad rheumatoid arthritis, 
there, he was a very athletic man, but at a certain point, like couldn't get out of bed, couldn't turn his head right to left, um, was completely paralyzed by it. And I saw the way that he, he was taking all these medications that gave him an ulcer. It's part of what prompted us to leave the United States and try to get out of the rat race and lead a different kind of lifestyle. And when we moved, we switched the, our diet entirely. Um, and he started eating an anti-inflammatory diet and it literally cured him. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so I, not every kind of arthritis is the same way. I have other friends with different kinds of arthritis who haven't had the same success with diet. So this isn't a judgment of people who have, you know, gone a different route or anything like that. But I, I, I do, because of some personal experiences, feel like it is something that people should avail themselves on, you know, you know, experiment with in addition to whatever their doctors obviously prescribe and stuff, because doctors are just less inclined to talk about those things and go that route. So I really do appreciate you calling in, Jenny. Thanks. The thing I'm constantly preaching is you have so much power, so much more power than you know as an individual. Go grasp your power. Nobody can do it for you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jenny. And, and good, keep good, good luck to you and everything. I'm so glad to hear that you and your kids are doing so well and your husband. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Take care. Turtle, you are going to be our last caller of the evening. What's on your mind? Uh, hello. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? What's on your mind tonight? I'm good, just chilling, enjoying my life in capitalism, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> my mind. Um, yeah, I was kind of thinking about, like, the whole situation uh, here in France. Uh, and also, like, the whole thing about, like, the homeless person that was killed in New York City. Um, mm -hmm. That felt kind of sad. But, like, the thing about the situation in New York that kind of, like, um, I don't really understand is... You know, the fact that he put him in a chokehold for 15 minutes since, since like, so, like, reckless of a behavior to do. Like, I don't understand why, like, it's not emphasized. Like, why so much people want to de-emphasize that and want to re-emphasize the fact that, like, this person was, like, in a mental crisis. Like, yeah, it, it kind of felt weird to me. Like, uh, I don't know if you know what I mean. I, I mean... So the fact that people were uh, emphasizing what as opposed to that he's in a mental crisis? I'm sorry, I just missed that. Uh, the fact that he put, put him in a chokehold for like 15 minutes. Oh, yeah. It is It is an odd thing, isn't it? I mean, it's such an aberrant. For, for me personally, it would be such an aberrant thing to put any other human being in a chokehold for any amount of time. That I can, to be honest, I can imagine me first screaming at someone on the subway <laughs> before I can imagine putting someone in a chokehold on the subway. So the fact that so many people are able to put themselves in the position of Penny more easily than they can put themselves in the position of Neely and identify with Penny is odd because Penny is not your average subway rider. Like I, I understand identifying with whomever Neely is yelling at. Sure. We've all been there, but to fully go and identify with the person who choked someone to death on a subway, it is an interesting little kind of a psychological leap. Yeah. Because like, I can't understand like the fact of like identifying with someone that like went into a sort of like, um, um, you know, uh, 
a, a confrontation, like a physical confrontation with him. But the fact that he, that 15 minutes in a chokehold, like it's, it's just not compatible with life. Like, you know, it's like. Yeah, I feel like I do. I, I, I need to follow up on this. I did see that there was some like ambivalence about the 15 minutes was the time from the beginning of the interaction to the time of the stop, but not necessarily the full time of the chokehold. I saw some like debating about that. So I do want to just hold space for the fact that it might not have been fully, fully 15 minutes. But regardless, it was a very long time. And it was the amount of time that was obviously too long because it resulted in somebody's death. Yeah, and it certainly like could not have not resort resulted in his death because like the chokehold was just too long. And it kind of also reminded me like the I don't remember the name of that of that kid like um, uh, you know the teenager that killed people in like a, a protest like I think that was back in 2020 um, and that would put it on trial uh, and that was actually judge. Uh, that uh, he acted in self-defense. I, I think you did an episode on that, like, um, in, I think it was in Kenosha. Mm-hmm. The um, Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, because that was also kind of the same. Like, the, the thing is that those people are just acting in some form, like, like the, the behavior that they have demonstrated to put themselves in, like, the situation that they were in. Mm-hmm was reckless to begin with like uh because i remember like um reading about this case uh the case of, of rittenhouse and just like also wondering like he was not like the only white man with a gun at, at mm-hmm. that time but he's the only one that killed people mm-hmm. because like also a lot of people were just saying like the way that he acted was just not secure like um, like there's a reason why he's the only one that killed people it's mm-hmm. not just the fact that he had a gun yeah, there that there was that video. Remember, there was, if I recall correctly, there was a video of some other, um, some other white guy who was kind of what was the scenario? I don't want to make something up, but there was some other parallel situation that happened that night where the person was like someone crazy was running at him. Like so some crazy protester was hollering and acting violent. And the guy with the gun was like, back up. And it ended uh, without anybody dying. Does anybody remember that? I forget what it was. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah. I think that's a really good point that like, even if you support, like, even if you supported the idea of a vigilante going into a protest zone to protect property that wasn't even his, which is ostensibly why Kyle Rittenhouse was there. House was there. You yeah. have to you you now take ownership of the fact that you are creating a dangerous situation that is more easily going to result in the loss of a life. You shifted it from a loss of property to a loss of life situation. And if there is a loss of life, my argument would be that you are responsible for creating that situation. I mean, not entirely responsible. I'm not saying that if someone comes out of nowhere and puts a gun to your head, you're obliged to roll over and die. But to escalate in the way that I think it was observable that Kyle Rittenhouse did you know, there's some culpability there and yeah, why we shouldn't that was, eat. That was my logic. And that's, that's why I was surprised that he got like, like he got nothing at the end. Like he was even to my understanding, even still able to like own guns, even though like, you know, maybe like you can find that he acted in self-defense in that specific instances. But the fact that he uh, basically manipulated guns, that he was just not, that he should not like, be close to a gun because I don't think that he's trustworthy with a gun. Like mm-hmm. he have proven that at least. 
um, I, I find it kind of crazy because I, I remember like it, it was a few years ago I, I watched like um, a John Oliver clip like um, that he made about like I think that was Daniel Ground laws mm-hmm. um, and he kind of uh, also went into like the sort of property laws and the um, what is it like the castle doctrine and all of that and uh, you know coming from like a European perspective the whole thing of like basically having some form of like thing that imply that you can protect your property by killing someone is, is somewhat extremely weird. Like it's, it, it felt kind of, I think it's unhinged, but in America, yeah. people think that they say property, like it's a magic word and I stay not caring. There's not a thing in this world that's more important than a human life. As far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And, and what I find fascinating also is that all the people that like describe themselves as being pro-life are always the ones to like, defend murder in those specific instances like um uh, I, I i i watched like the um there was a left mafia like um uh, mm-hmm. because one of them like, went on team pool uh stream and i watched mm. like a little bit of it and he was like the, the vocabulary that he was using about a specific case like the case of uh of the, the men in new york was just so like he was basically saying that this man was like a criminal that needed to be killed um, I don't know. It kind of betray like the notion that those people don't give a shit about life in general. Like it's just like I, I find I find that like fascinating. Like um, uh, and also kind of I gotta say it's it's taxing. It's hard to talk about um, because it really does reveal the gap in how we value each other. And I don't know if there's a real cure for that. I mean, I I obviously don't think there should be mandatory conscription, but I do think about things like. You know, how conscription in a place like Israel bonds the public to each other or whether some kind of like farming program or environmental workshop program or something that everybody in America might do after high school to help make us see each other on equal footing and travel to different parts of the country and meet different kinds of people in a way that would hopefully start to heal some of this weird hatefulness that people feel toward their fellow man. It's it's disgusting. Like it's really hard. I gotta say to talk about day after day after day after day after day of, of rising. Like I was so glad not to be in last week when this shit popped off, and I resent that it's still going on because I don't have anything more to say. And I'm trying desperately not to be in a mind space where I become hateful of my fellow man because they hold hateful opinions. But honestly, it's taking everything I've got to hold on and not just go full nihilist. Because I'm, I'm sorry, this is some of the most disgusting shit I've ever heard. And it's happening on a semi-regular news cycle. And people that I like are opening their, or would otherwise be indifferent to, are opening their mouths and saying shit that makes me want to throw them in a gulag and throw, throw away all of my values and fucking kill them. <laughs> I mean, I'm kidding, obviously. But like, because it's like, how dare, like, you, it's da- your entity walking around having that little regard for human life. Yeah, but it's also about, like, what is their vision of society at the end of the day? And, you know, the fact that, like, a person, like, um, uh, nearly, like, uh, because he was homeless and uh, because he was also in a mental health crisis and the fact that, like, you know, um, the people that were, like, uh, manifesting, uh, protesting in, in, uh, in Kenosha or, like, all of those people that, like, got killed because they did something that was, like, just, you know, not in their, 
that they, they don't feel was good uh, to do in general and that they want to like uh, emphasize specifically that. Um, you know, I, I don't think that like this, I, I, don't, I don't think even with her, with her logic, this can like um, seriously say, say that like murder is like justified in any way. But at the end of the day, it's also about like the differences that they make in between like someone that is like culpable of doing something bad that therefore deserve something bad to happen to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the case, for example, like uh, other like culture war stuff that they are bringing all the time, like abortion and all of that, um, you know, when they're talking about the unborn, for example, and like they're talking about the fact that like they're pro-life, quote unquote, um, it's mainly because they are saying that like a fetus is like it's innocent. It's actually it's not really that they value the life of, of this fetus because they don't care about like this fetus is becoming a child. They don't care like you know they can whittle and die for them. Like it's just like, uh, but like um, if like a person is culpable of like basically anything or they just like deserve what is going to happen to them. Like it kind of felt like that. Um, and I don't know, it's a logic that felt kind of like very sinister in general. And I don't think like it's specific to the US, but I think the US like hyper, you know, just like, I think because of history, like um, the fact that like you have a lot of guns, like uh, people kind of have, have uh, historically are just uh, socialized to think that uh, deputizing themselves for their own security is like something normal. Um, yeah, I don't know if like that, that like help the fact that like in the US, uh, this type of things are just like more, um, I, I don't know if you understand what I mean. <laughs> um, hello. 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 Yeah, no, I'm here. I'm sorry. I thought you said how and you were doing dot, 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 and we we're going to finish your thought. I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were at the, the end of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is demoralizing and, and I, it's inconsistent and it's frustrating and we just got to, you know, figure out how to get around that. This is something that's deeper and social that's happening here um, that I'm sure we'll be talking about for some time, but I appreciate you calling in turtle. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, also, Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. I sent you, like, a personal message, I think, the last time we talked, like, because, you know, um, we were talking about, like, the situation in France, so uh, I don't know if you saw it, uh, but if you're still interested in, like, to have, like, people to talk about, like, either the situation or, like, anything that have to do with, like, um, the situation, the, like, sort of, like, uh, democratic crisis that is happening here. Um, I've yeah. Names. Okay, I'll 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 check for it. I'm sorry that I missed it. I've been you know out, but uh, I'll I'll check for a turtle. Thanks for calling in. Thanks. Bye. Bye bye. Keep the faith. Thank you all um, for calling in today. As always, I ran out of brick song. I already used a brick house, so we're gonna go with Ben Folds Five on this one. Keep the faith. Six a.m. day after Christmas, I throw some clothes on in the dark. The smell of cold.
car seat is freezing. The world is sleeping. I am numb. Up the stairs to her apartment, she is bald up on the Surrender. 